the older you get, the more uh, exponentially the chances rise that you'll lose someone that you love. And, um, you know, uh, I was in my late 20s and I woke up and I had breakfast and I worked out and I went to uh, work and I was in the writer's room uh, uh, working on this show called Crossing Jordan at the time. And uh, the, a PA came into the room and said, there's a phone call for you. And I went and I answered that phone call and my life changed forever. Um, because my father was gone. Um, and uh, I, it was the last time that I'd ever spoken. I didn't realize that it would, could happen that suddenly. And um, in those moments, you feel uh, completely and totally shaken and broken and scared and, uh, and confused. And uh, it does feel that the answer to crawling out of that hole is always uh, your family or your friends or the people that you love um, who are still here um, and can... Um, and sort of share in that grief, but what happens when 140 million of those things happen, uh, phone calls happen at exactly the same time um, uh, to everyone? It feels like it would be much harder. So I do feel I share your optimism. I don't, uh, thank you for saying that. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it as articulately as that, but I do feel like despite the show's reputation as being dark and depressing and sad and uh, grief porn, um, uh, I do think that it also feels authentic uh, for anyone who's ever suffered that, that level of loss. Sometimes the, the worst part of grief is it feels like it's never going to end. Um, it, it really does. Um, that's different than depression, uh, clinical depression, which I, I know people who have uh, that, and um, uh, that's a different animal entirely. But when you're really in grief, uh, the feeling of like this, this person is gone forever and I'm never going to see them again and that's not going to change. Feels like a bottomless pit, but um, you do uh, come out of it, and then this is how you do it: you sing your way out. Terry, <laughs> yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, that was beautifully stated. But you know, my my father almost became a Catholic priest, and he always said to me when I was growing up, "Life will out." That was the expression he used, and I saw that happening in in nature. Right, something is dead, and something grows out of it. And I've always thought of that when I think of our show. I think it does feel authentic, and I feel that, you know, in Nora's case, she has the opportunity to walk away from her life at any moment because her life disappears, and she keeps choosing not to do that. And it, theoretically, we could all walk away from our lives at any moment, but we don't. Probably one, because of fear, but then two is probably the people in our lives that we don't want to walk away from, and I think the show deals with that really truthfully. We have 50 seconds left, so I'm going to ask each of you what your go-to afterlife karaoke song is. If you need to come back from the dead by singing, what's it going to be? Oh my God, I wish I had A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Oh God, it's, I can't, I'm not good on the spot. Um, um, so many great choices. Um, I guess, uh, something off of Abbey Road. <laughs> okay. Nice. Um, great. Nice. Yeah, that'd be What about you, Tom? It's nice uh, and slow and easy. Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places. Uh, Seems like I might get down there. That's good. <laughs> we know where you're headed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid.
You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. (laughs) So, um, we are starting a brand new phase. Uh, When we launched this, with the uh, preamble, prelude, prologue, whatever you want to say, uh, of uh, the B-side Infinity War, where we had um, a good friend of the show, Ian Olson, on to discuss- Can you stay on brand and say friend of the fog? Friend of the fog? Okay, <laughs> fine. I'm just playing with you. Go ahead. Friend of the fog. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Ian Olson was on uh, to discuss Infinity War, and then we moved into season one of HBO's The Leftovers. And the concentration- on the films that we were covering in that time were about ghosts and ghost stories. And a lot of season one dealt with grief and, and uh, dealt with uh, the problems of trauma in sort of a post cataclysmic uh, environment and how you cope and how you deal with that. So um, we did that phase and now we're moving into season two and the leftovers itself kind of lends itself to different thematic focal points in each particular season. So in season two, uh, this focus is going to be on uh, uh, something like, a, I mean, it, it sounds a bit on the nose to say revelations. That's not, uh, not revelations in terms of like just apocalypse, although apocalypse does mean revealing or unveiling. Um, but it's going to be hinging on things that, and ways that cataclysmic happenings um, or major, major life events can position you to learn things about yourself um, and uh, certain things that are hidden underneath the surface, certain things you're not considering, certain realities you haven't come to grips with uh, that begin to emerge and reveal themselves. So uh, the film slate that we are moving into right now will feature five films. We're going to do five films this time around, uh, five films which each have as part of their narrative thread um, a sense where there's a profound revelation somewhere in the story that uh, sort of turns everything on its head, uh, either for the characters themselves or for us as viewers, uh, or maybe both. Um, so that's what we are venturing into. So in just a moment, we're going to be launching this phase, uh, season two, uh, of hashtag in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, uh, with a discussion of the first two episodes of season two of The Leftovers, and then we will have an extended conversation about Martin Scorsese's film, uh, really probably his only film that would be classified as a horror thriller, Shutter Island. So um, are you ready to dive in and let the mystery be? Uh, I, I would totally love to let the mystery be, and we will happily get to that. But I am curious, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but something that just registered for me that I'd love to have you offer some input on. So sure. So that it's clear in the morning is this overarching series that is uh, examining leftovers as the spine seasons one, two, and three, each of those, as you just outlined seasons one, two, and three have their own sort of slice of what we would say is the purpose and intent behind the, in the morning series. Um, you know, season one being this remnant idea and, uh, 
the idea of ghosts, the idea of loss is very tactile and tangible in this current kind of global pandemic moment in which we find ourselves. And so I'm curious, uh, one, to pat you on the back of just devising some of these inroads for conversation, but how, as you were in the mental process of devising, how would you connect what you just described of revealing about yourself that you mm. laid out of this slate of films and connect it to that overarching in the morning? How would you sort of articulate that? So a lot of times what can happen is, and I, I do think it's really funny that you, I mean, it is a, a bit ironic that you're asking me this question because I, I took to social media like literally two days ago, devised this whole big post that I was going to share and spit out into the world. Ultimately didn't because I, I wasn't happy with the language and wanted to err on the side of uh, waiting to speak rather than speaking something when I couldn't say what I really meant. Um, but I feel like when the global pandemic kind of hit, it really brought to light a lot of things. It, it, it revealed things about figures in leadership. I don't just mean uh, governmental bodies, uh, but sure. also in businesses and in homes and, and, and things. And, and I think it really sort of revealed priorities and where people uh, place the full extent of their attention and what they view as, as truly um, vital and what's not truly vital um, so that I'm not being vague or, 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 or too um, nebulous about the Deuce. thing. Uh, yeah. Obtuse um, is so like, I'm, I'm really, I've been thinking a lot. Now, this is the kind of conversation. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I, I love that you that you brought this up because I think this is important. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about idolatry and idols and, uh, and, and ways in which times like a global pandemic and the pressure that it puts you under and the ways it disrupts normality can force you to confront or at least to reveal certain things that you've placed in your heart that might be considered uh, idols, whether that be, uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not merely talking about, cause there's a, what sort of tipped me over is this conversation that I actively don't want to have right now, because I, I think it would just take away from too many other things um, of like the statues that had been uh, raised up as, yeah, as sure. tributes and, and, and should they come down? And obviously there is a direct connection where you talk about like, Oh, tearing down statues and tearing down idols like that just sure. connected in, in my mind uh, for, for purely superficial reasons. But then it did sort of begin to unpack. And I'm like, well, you can begin to look at the way people talk and the way people think, and you can begin to see what represents a true priority in their life, whether that be uh, they idolize history or they idolize Safety, going back to episode five of Fear of God, we talked about the idolatry of safety, uh, or whether they idolize um, liberty, or whether they idolize, um, you know, equality, or like there's all kinds of things. And all of these things may be in their proper context, good and valuable and right and cherishable and praiseworthy. And they may they may be all of those things. But what begins to happen is in situations like this, when we begin to position those good and right and and great things as ultimate things mm. then things begin to get ugly and suddenly you begin to watch your humanity dissolve in front of you and it can reveal certain things about uh, about you and ironically i was not thinking about this when i built the the sort of templates for how we would 
navigate through the leftovers. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it did connect for me that the word apocalypse, which is often used to mean like devastating or, or concluding or like, you know, a dystopian future sort of idea. But um, apocalypse or actually- Or an X-Men villain. Or an X-Men villain. Exactly. And a so-so X-Men movie. But um, <laughs> the- uh, So-so father. <laughs> so-so. But- um, Apocalypse really means like the unveiling or the revealing and sure. and and so the dots just connected for me and and there's a lot of thematic things that we'll get into with leftovers when we cover season two as a whole, but right. there's a lot of things in leftovers season two like you're gonna hear a refrain of you know people saying I don't understand what's happening and and a couple of times somebody looks right back at them and says, yes, you do, you do understand what's happening you know and how these things these traumatic events sort of raise up revelations that we're in denial about ourselves or that we're in denial about what we prioritize. And and that's how it connected. There's this grieving part where we just sort of mourn what's lost and we we move into a place of coping or coming to terms with what we've lost. But then there is also a piece of it where we have to come to terms with what we have learned about ourselves and what we see about ourselves and who we are. And I think that is as vital, um, if not more vital, than the other piece of it. And so that's what prompted uh, this focal point for going through season two. I I appreciate you unpacking that, and hopefully listeners did too. Um, Without further ado, Reed. Now we find ourselves back in Leftover Season 2, but not back in Mapleton, New York. No, friends. This time around, we find ourselves smack dab in the prehistoric era, at least for a moment, to then shortly thereafter find ourselves in one Jardin, Texas, which will become the place that we hang out in for the entire pretty much the entirety of season two of Leftovers. And without further ado, we now examine episodes one, Axis Mundi, and episodes two, A Matter of Geography, of The Leftovers, season two. Read. A miracle. Read. Nathan. Riri, I... To people who don't have the same level of investment in the TV show Leftovers as I do, which I can recognize and I can own, maybe it isn't unique to me. I know you share similar levels of affection, but I also know it isn't for everybody. So I can recognize that. Setting that aside, Mm -hmm. I don't know how, I didn't know how much my soul needed to hear a bluegrass tinged feminine vocaled hymn about the need to let the mystery be set against imagery of mm. joy and loss. I can't mm. like my, I, I couldn't describe it. I tried to describe it sure. to my wife. And I'm like, I'm failing. It doesn't, I don't, I don't know. It's, it is, it is too deep for me to unpack in a coherent fashion to explain how like a hot air balloon rocketed into the atmosphere was mm, just mm-hmm. the experience of starting season two and, and being reminded of that in that moment. Like, yeah, I, sure, I even knew sure. it was coming, but I wasn't consciously thinking about it. And right when that song starts that opening track, I was like, Oh my God, yeah. I needed this Oh yeah, yeah. so much. It mm-hmm. is, I was even pondering this. It reminds me it, 
that title sequence makes me think of the the Beekner quote I do love so much and is hanging in our home. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I had no idea how much I needed to hear this song, these words set against this imagery. And yeah. it, it, it had a wildly profound effect on me just yeah. hearing the dumb title credit sequence <laughs> no i understand it yeah so it's a, that's the first big thing you notice uh when you get into this one is is, is there's a because it's a completely different title sequence uh featuring the song called let the mystery be by iris dement and it's uh set to so listeners who watched it know this but it's set to images of people you said you know uh people of, of joy and loss uh, because it's images of very happy people they're all very uh, joyful images, but in each of the pictures, there is the shadow of somebody who used to be there that's not. Yeah, and uh, it's it's powerful imagery. It's really really powerful imagery. Um, and uh, in many ways, and I'll I'll use the cre- opening credit sequence to to express this. In many ways, the leftovers feels to me like two shows, and it feels like season one is season one. Like if you're viewing TV as a movie instead, season one was what it was and, and just sort of wraps up. And then season two is almost like a sequel to season one, not necessarily a continuation of the same show, although it technically is a continuation of the same show and certainly of the same characters and some right. similar themes. But it feels in many ways like a sequel to season one. And then season three, when we get there, feels very much like a kind of an extended epilogue to what we got in season two. So I'll contextualize more of that when we get to season three. But um, but yeah, I, I, and a lot of that is rooted in like this completely new title sequence that kind of recalibrates what the show is trying yeah. to explore and say and do. Um and uh, yeah, it's, it's, so I, I love it. Absolutely. And so then when we go into the episode, uh, again, Axis Mundi, which the, the it's, I believe it's a Latin phrase means axis of the world. Um, I, in my little looking, uh, found out that it means the connection between heaven and earth. And so uh, when we start it, we don't have any of our core characters. Um, we started to, to throw to throw a dark curveball at you. Axis Mundi, sic mundus. Oh, est. that's right. Mm, yeah, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, so, uh, not only do we not have any of our core characters, we don't have the modern era <laughs> when we when we open up <laughs> yeah, season yeah, yeah, two yeah. of of this. Um, we have you know this this. You mentioned prehistoric. This woman uh, steps outside of uh, literally a a a cave woman, uh, prehistoric woman steps outside of the cave where she's dwelling, and she's pregnant. She's uh, about to give birth. Literally, a huge earthquake happens, collapses the cave, presumably kills all of her uh, you know fellow companions inside, and then she's trapped outside where then where she then proceeds to have just some of the most horrendous. Uh, sequence of things like she she gives birth out there and then she and her baby are trapped like in a rainstorm and then she sees something in the distance like smoke signals or whatever and so then she begins to traverse that you know way but she's struggling to find food she gets bit by a venomous snake it's just oh it's terrible it's awful um and then i remember so um what listeners may or may not know uh is is I invited my wife to finally watch the show, and 
unlike when we went through season one on the show, I had not rewatched season one before we discussed it. And so now I'm going into this conversation and I have rewatched season two. Um, I also am rewatching it now. So now I have some fresher context for the whole of it while I'm also uh, revisiting it here. And when I showed that to my wife, I remember about four or five what, episodes. The in, she, yeah, yeah. She, she looked at me and, and said like, do we ever find out what the deal was with that cave woman? <laughs> and I'm like, well, uh, not, 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 not really, not in the way that you would think. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, immediately following that, uh, I'm just moving through like some likes, dislikes. Yeah. I'll, uh, my my first couple here were introduced to the to Jarden, Texas, and to the Murphys. Um, I, I one of the early things that we see from John Murphy, the the um, patriarch of this family, is that he clearly has some deeply rooted issues. Goodness gracious! Um, first thing we see is him in, antagonizing a childhood friend who positions himself as a kind of a psychic of sorts. John's very skeptical of that, and uh, so skeptical to a degree that his reactions are, uh, we could say, extreme. <laughs> In terms well, of, and it, uh, it quickly establishes yeah. he has some some pathological history of animus towards the the non literal, more or less. Yeah, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's absolutely. it's really powerful. And then the I, I don't want to take up just this entire time. The next note that I have on here is just uh, that miracle song gets stuck in your head in like the worst way. Oh, it's yeah. like not a song the, I the enjoy, chorus, but it, the yeah, but it school but chorus. it gets stuck. It's it's pretty catchy. Um, um uh, I love Regina King. Goodness gracious, she's, she's so good and she will she's outstanding. She she just kills it in this whole season, but you know, welcome to the leftovers party. Um <laughs> I love and this is just my sort of perverse way of enjoying things. Like I just love that the whole first episode basically is nothing familiar. You know, yeah. it's it's a new geography. It starts with a new, a, a different era of a different epoch, rather. Um, you know, so you've got that. You've got a new geography. You've got brand new characters. The only hint yeah. towards what we know comes in a very jarring fashion, but in a really fun fashion, which is at the church when, you know, yeah. the pastor says, I'm going on leave and we've got an interim pastor and there's no fanfare whatsoever. All of a sudden, Matt Jamison is, you know, just the yeah, smiling right. Chris Eccleston. Like, oh, yeah, that's me. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I just I just and it's love a full it. 40 minutes. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. A full it's 40 late. minutes into the episode before we, we have any familiarity with it at all. It's a really bold storytelling choice, but a good one. Uh, it, it's it's impressive. This will this um, will come back to to haunt the proceedings of, of season two but in a way that it didn't register with me the first time i watched this years ago um evie tells the knock knock joke about the broken pencil and mm-hmm. uh, john says broken pencil who and she says never mind it's pointless uh yes. which which has a rich thematic guilty remnant-esque quality oh, to it um yeah, absolutely yeah that's 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 more or less my my broad notes on. I just have uh, two one. more things. Yeah, I have two more things to mention. I just had a little note where it said a uh, few things terrify me more than scenes in films or TV when somebody sticks their hands down a garbage oh, disposal. Yes, yes, yes. I I mm. felt that John Murphy. That, that's me. <laughs> that's me. I'm like ah, I know, 
I know intellectually that I'm not going to flip that switch. Is someone going to run up and flip it on me? But I just don't know, you know? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so I had that. Um, I will say about John, um, this is going to come up more, so we don't have to unpack all this right now, but some of the authority he bears in the town and the actions he takes with relative impunity strike me as kind of odd because there doesn't seem, other than the park rangers, there doesn't seem to be any specific law enforcement presence in Jarden outside of just, you know, the, the park rangers. Um, so I wonder why he's allowed to do these things that everybody apparently knows he does sure. with without sort of repercussions to it. Like he's he clearly has tremendous weight of authority inside the town uh, to the degree that his validation or not, you know, causes the authority figures to just back off in some cases that will, you know, one particularly right. that we'll see in the next episode. Um, so uh, or no, and just in a in a few episodes, I mean, Um so yeah, that uh, that just strikes me as odd. It's going to come up again later in different contexts, but I just wonder, like, how did John establish this authority? Why does he hold so much weight? Um, and and I don't know that the show ever really sort of defines it deliberately. Um, but then my last note uh, on this episode is the uh, you pointed out that she makes the joke and uh, the pencil and says it's pointless. Also, Evie's epilepsy, mm-hmm. and then uh, when she comes to her first words are. I went away and uh, I just thought that was like, Oh man. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot yeah. of little, a yeah. lot of little lines in yeah. there that, that kind of point to what's going on, but that's a stellar opening to season two. Uh, episode two is called a matter of geography. So one thing that we didn't highlight in episode one's discussion is that 40 minutes in, you see Matt Jameson. We mentioned that, but then about 45, 46 minutes, just a few minutes later, we see, Nora and Kevin and Jill with the the baby that Holy Wayne and Christine had, Lily, um, they all arrive in Jarden next door to the Murphys. And uh, that's just that we hadn't seen them before, didn't know anything about them, and then they just arrive. So um, a matter of geography takes us all the way back into Mapleton and paints for us the picture of kind of how they arrived there um, in quick succession. And, uh, you know, I always loved the opening, kind of the opening of this episode right after they rehash for us the ending of season one where Nora finds the baby on the porch. And then it goes into later that evening where they're sitting down and and Nora's going to stay because her bags are already packed. And and Kevin admittedly is like, like, wait a minute, like, are we doing this? We don't we don't really know each other. Like, what's going on? And I just love that scene where she's like, what do you need to know? Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Like, well, it's such a. One, it's a bit of a break for Lindelof, but two, it's a bit counterintuitive from a rules of writing standpoint, right? Like mm. your mm. your typical trajectory is you need secrets, right? Yes. And yes. and and it's and and storytelling is characters navigating the withholding or divulgent divul di, divulging, divulging of mm their secrets and so what's really powerful about that scene now sadly secrets start accruing again or at least you know there's still some some echoes some hauntings of secrets there but one thing i love about that scene is in that moment at least those characters are being as transparent with maybe even themselves as we've ever seen them and it's just a really powerful absolutely it's really powerful um yeah it's it's wonderful you know that that refrain of it's okay it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's really, mm-hmm. really lovely. Um, 
This episode introduces a concept that will that will carry through the rest of the series. Um, when not with this specificity exactly, but when the MIT researchers are buying Nora's house. And she's yeah. trying to suss out why they're so interested. And mm-hmm. uh, she says, or they say rather, um, of of people studying this, it's to protect themselves in case of a recurrence. And she says, mm-hmm. do you think it's going to happen again? And their simple response is, well, why wouldn't it? And I just, yeah. that's a really loaded scene that sets her on her path. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. for the series yes. itself becomes this spectral mm-hmm. conceit you know, of, of concern for these characters, because one thing remarkably, we, I don't, you may have mentioned this and I may have zoned out. I apologize if you have, but the, the value of Jarden as a, as a geography in the series is there's been zero departures there. And so it becomes this haven, um, not just, not just haven, but a, a national park, right? Like it's, it is, uh, and almost not almost, but a religiously sought after location. And so absolutely. We are the 9,261. We are spared. Wow. It is, uh, Talk about yeah. idolatry. no kidding. No kidding. And um, that's the, you know, that's definitely going to come up. Um, what else you got for two? So I, I wrote a couple of lines down that I think are just, uh, are, are really cool. Um, the first one is what Nora says. So she's, helping to pitch the tent in the backyard there they've they've gone into jarden they had rented a house from mapleton to relocate to jarden as a kind of an experiment when they get there they find out that the house has been burned down so then uh in a a very impulsive and frustrating effort to continue their quest to make it into jarden nora who just earned a cool almost 3 million for the MIT professors who wanted to buy her house, uh, drops $3 million sight unseen on a house in Jarden uh, in probably one of the first concrete scenes that shows us, yeah, we're not okay. Right, we're not okay right. at all. Um, and so then uh, when they're pitching, when she's pitching the tent, because they temporarily stay with Matt and Mary, um, who are just staying in this kind of the garage next to the church where Matt is helping. And when they're pitching the tent back there and uh, she's interrogating Matt a bit about why he doesn't want to come and stay with them and all these other sorts of stuff. And then uh, Kevin's like, look, he doesn't, Nora. It's fine. And then she looks at her and she's like, you two bury a body together and now you got each other's backs. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I was like, wow, that's wonderful. And then Matt looks at her and he's like, you told her? Yeah. (laughs) It's it's great. Um, And then the other line that I had written down, which uh, has uh, just tremendous more profundity to it, is uh, something we have not explicitly mentioned yet but did get teased at the end of season one is that kevin is not only hearing voices like his father and causes him to put earbuds in where he cranks heavy music loudly but he is also seeing patty levin and she's you know echoing things in his ear and when they're about to go over to the house of the murphys and hang out with them for the first time she says hard to tell if they're part of your story or if you're part of theirs Oh, what a line. Oh, man, what a line. Um, well, so, it's yeah. funny. You, you yeah. just said something that is is knocking around my skull here, and that's t- how you interpret Nora's plunking $3 million for this house being a signal th- of not okayness. And, and it's funny because I actually, for that moment in time, read that as quite opposite. Like she... 
Oh, I agree with you. It is a it is a uncommonly wild choice to make. Sure, but we're sure. in an uncommonly wild universe of this show, and there's a, a scene at the end of this episode where Jill of Nora says to Kevin, she needs to be here because it makes her feel safe. Yes. And Kevin's response is, and what if it's no safer than any place else? So I do think for a brief moment, like Nora is, and, and this will, this will come up and I won't unpack it too much here, but this will come up throughout season two. At least it's, I know you're caught up on season two again. uh, I don't remember everything past all this, but this notion of safety and, 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 and to me, what that, that, that particular thread and these two episodes had a very strong resonance with the world right now. Like our need to just, my God, feel because there's a difference between an idolatry of safety and there's a, and, and just being okay in your moment right mm-hmm. like right. those are those are different yeah. things like you can worship yeah. the mm-hmm. need to yeah. be there but you can also mm-hmm. be the nora who's just like no for this what's going to quickly dissolve but for this brief shining moment nora is okay and and screw mm-hmm. money that like what does money matter if yeah however right or wrong however rational or not i'm in i'm in where i'm supposed to be you know and, and that, yes. there, there's just a really powerful sort of well and thread and, there. and and also it directly ties to the thesis that the MIT professors give her when they buy her house is they said, we think it might be a matter of geography. Right. So they've planted seeds yes. that, yeah. and, and it's going to come up later, but they've planted seeds in her mind that like, no, we think it's a matter of geography. So if you're the one who lost three of her family members, why would you not want to be sure. in the town where, where nobody lost? lost right. Yeah. Nobody lost anything. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is, yeah, it's either way, it is a, a, an incredibly affecting sort of moment and, and vital to the journey that this character is, is eventually going to go on. Um, I only had one other little note here that I wanted to bring up is, um, so Nora says something towards the end because, you know, Kevin is seeing Patty and and that's really obviously disturbing for him uh, because in the early part of the episode, we didn't highlight it very much, but in the early part of the episode, you know, he goes and inters Patty's body um, Mm, and mm -hmm. delivers it to the authorities, like kind of kind of wanting to get caught. And the police officer uh, asks him, like, trying to blow up your life. Yeah. You trying to blow up your life Um, message. And (laughs) so. uh, So, yeah. So. But Nora says, and again, I don't know how well you remember season two, but Nora says, if there's something you want to tell me, whatever it is, I can handle it. And that to me, it's like you have the scene in the beginning of that episode where they told each other their deepest, darkest secrets and it was okay. Right. They said it and it was. It was okay. Now she makes this affectionate and devotive sort of declaration like if there's something you want to tell me, whatever it is, I can handle it. Without, in case you don't remember the events, she's wrong, and she's and and she's not wrong in the sense of like she's deliberately being deceitful. She is not self aware enough to realize that she, no, she can't handle it. Right. And 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 we will discover. I won't tell you know all of what's going on, but you know but you'll see. Come on, Riri, back off the spoiler hints. You know, come <laughs> on. Um, but but you'll see. You know, in the episodes we discuss. You know, next week, just how. 
uh, on the edge, Nora really is. Um, and, uh, and, and what a kind of a house of cards her general okayness, sure. um, kind of is. And, um, so anyway, that's, that's my final sort of narrative comment. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to unpack themes. Did you have anything else that you wanted to bring out from season, from episode two? Um, only <coughs> that has been the first installment of our prolonged conversation on leftovers season two in this case episodes one and two where we're introduced to the murphy clan part of the population of jardin texas where there have been zero departures come on down but be sure you have your wristband see you next week on tv guideposts that was fun all right that was fun re-ree indeed indeed Nathan. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and now is the time where we venture back into Jarden, Texas, and the content of HBO's The Leftovers, Season 2. But not quite in Jarden just yet. We're going to be going to parts unknown, to characters we haven't caught up with in a couple of episodes, and then maybe we'll get back to Jarden and you know, we'll take a little, take a little detour, if you will. But uh, either way, we'll find ourselves discussing all the various aspects of life post departure, trying our best to let the mystery be on this week's installment of hashtag TV Guideposts and season two of The Leftovers. I'm really annoyed that you finished the whole series again. You know, what? Without, it's... hate the player, not the game. Right, I am. <laughs> You got it wrong, and you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, I did. Uh huh. I, I did. That's what. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> no, listen. It's funny. You ju- it's funny you just said that so grievously incorrectly. But uh, I was listening yes. to a podcast today. <laughs> yeah, I listened to a podcast today, and this guy was trying to say that a filmmaker it was a movie podcast, and the guy was trying to highly compliment a movie he was talking about. Mm. And referencing that this particular director, filmmaker, did more with less. <laughs> but he get but he kept saying less is more. I wish people would have a more less is more approach. I'm like, ah, you just did that like three times. I don't think you realize. You keep using that the, phrase. I do not think it means what yeah, you think it means. I think you mean, I think it means. <laughs> anyway, yes. So, so I do hate the player. Yeah. Well. I've actually never seen the player, actually. Um, once years ago um yeah. so me. listen you know that once you start watching this show i mean like i'm, I'm not gonna listen no, i i love my wife and i love I, i'm not asking you not to. I, and i love my marriage and there's no way i'm going to introduce her right. to the show sure and tell her she can't finish the show and so episode three is called <laughs> off ramp <laughs> and speaking of off ramps Moving i'd on. like to get on the exit here <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, no, Let the mystery I'm, buy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. 
Mm-mm. That's 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 like tenuously close to like messing up that song for me, <laughs> and I really don't want that to happen. Like you are not allowed. So oh. episode three is off ramp. It features Lori and Tommy and myself, and the rest of the viewers will or listeners will quickly catch up so that we can figure out how to talk to you about this. Mm. Um, <laughs> all all sort of you know jokiness aside, um, which is impossible. Let's be honest. <laughs> This is a really powerful episode. Yeah, it really I is. Think. No, yeah, in a lot uh, of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I for for how high it takes you, and for my God, how low it pulls you yes. by the end of it. Yes. I mean it's funny because I I remember most of the imagery from this episode, mm-hmm. even though I had not like watched it for like a third time. Um, I'm sorry. I'll lay off. Um, no, so no, no. I remember Please continue. The, this I, is fun I, for me. I remembered most. Of the, I know. I know you love it. Uh, I remembered most of the imagery from this episode, but I didn't remember the context or the sequence. Sure. And so, I I I bought it in the first run, where I was like, "Oh my god, this is so beautiful." Lori and Tommy are helping people defect from the GR. Like this is so gloriously wonderful. And yeah. praise you, God. Look at this is happening. And then there's like, wait, oh, oh, wait. I think I remember. Oh, oh, God. Oh no, that's like that's oh, no. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Mama, no. You're, you're like in that car with that family. You're like, no. <laughs> like, please, you're in the wrong lane. Oh my God, steer away. Oh my God. Jeez Louise, that's terrible. It's awful. It's awful. Oh man. Um yeah, it is what, is, what are some highlights or lowlights for you? So so I'm I'm gonna heap a lot of praise on this episode. So let me start on a low light. Um okay. the so so an observation that uh my wife and I discussed that uh r- made me recognize how potentially I won't say desensitized, but um, we absorb a lot of mature content on this show, uh, uh, subject-wise, thematically, etc. Um, so I am somewhat inoculated to potentially disturbing and upsetting things. I won't say I'm impervious to them, obviously, um, but it is. it was this episode that sort of raised the conversation between us about how disturbing some of the elements in The Leftovers is is and can be um for instance that scene between tommy and meg is is just terrible it's awful i don't mean it's terrible as in like it's poor craftsmanship it's it's sure it's awful i mean the the if you're watching or haven't watched this meg from the first season who is a figurehead uh, a growing figurehead in the the mapleton gr uh, dramatically re-enters the series yes. in the third episode and rapes Tommy. I mean, like that's yes. effectively what yes. And then following that, bad enough, following that he is dragged from sure. the truck and doused in gasoline and a lighter, like, lit- like the whole scene is just so oppressive. Like everything about it is just so oppressive. Um, And so that that's that's something that I'm like, Okay, like I forget because of how rich my emotional affection is for this show. I forget that there are moments like that that a casual viewer or somebody sure. who's not used to that kind of mature content might be really put back on their heels by it. Um, and, uh, and in some, some potentially upsetting ways. And I think to what you described was perfect. 
this film has some heights of storytelling and also has some really big lows that that uh, might, I think, this more so than certain other episodes in this season uh, might like be too much for some viewers. Uh, in its in its sort of oppressive uh, nature, so that's kind of a the, the, the little bit of a ding um, on on this particular episode. But again, there's a there's a lot to praise because it's exceptionally well written and it does a lot to. I think there's more done in this episode to unpack the characters of Laurie and Tommy than were done in the entire first season. Sure, um, yeah. in in like you know an hour of time. well, and this is this is a perfect episode of illustrating what the show starts to the heights it starts to grasp when it's not bound by the text of the book yes you know yes being able to you know this season so far episode one is more or less 95 percent just the murphys brand new characters we haven't met right up until then mm-hmm. uh episode two is catching us up with how kevin and crew get to jordan and then the so point being like there's a lot of real estate covered in these mm-hmm. three episodes absolutely character wise um that that uh creates new plumb lines for where each character is in a real dramatic fashion and i don't think i um i don't think where this episode how this episode resolves and i don't mean the specific plot point i just mean the that wave we just talked about undoes the value of the beauty that i think is present in that opening mm you know, crescendo, I think what this, I mean, Kevin says it in season one, people aren't ready to feel better. They're ready to F and explode. Yes. Like, right. Yes. Like Lori, what a, I mean, and Amy Brenneman just kills it. Oh, she's um, fantastic. And, and, uh, you know, maybe you can speak to this in a moment if you want, but I, I like the actor who plays Tommy and, and, Ultimately, I'm not sure the show, I can't remember exactly how far the show takes him, but episodes like this remind me of why I appreciate what he brings, um, because they're all just these simmering volcanoes. Yes. And, yes. and gosh, this episode is so heartbreaking because he's infiltrating GR yes. houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the, the wear that's having on him. Yes. Um, the wear and tear as it, as it were, that's having on him, but it's for the purpose of bringing them out. And I, I want you to, to add whatever you want, but I think thematically one of the richest bits of dialogue in the series so far is Lori to Tommy. Why are we losing? Mm, mm-hmm. And Tommy says, because they, the remnant, the GR, are giving them something. We can strip it away, but once it's gone, we have nothing to put back in its place. Yeah, yeah. And there's something mm-hmm. profound about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and instructive about that. Now, it's arguable maybe they learned the, long, the wrong lessons from that. Yeah, I agree. But, no, I agree. You know, it's that. But even that, even, quote, unquote, learning the wrong lessons still leave them in a very interesting place as characters, right? Oh, totally. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. This is a a bit creepy and I was not ready quite for this turn, but yes. Um, Anyway, I would say uh, regarding the comment you made about Tommy, one of, one of the things that I feel about the show is I feel that Tommy ultimately in the scheme of the leftovers, I think becomes more of a supporting utility player. 
Sure. And and, and that is. Re- and you you know, I mean, you. Yeah, because I I race to. I the don't end. know if you know, but I I finished it, so I went all the way. Um, but he uh he has some interesting and substantive things to bring, and I really like the actor. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that's that's one sort of thing about him. I think this episode might be some of his. Sure. finest moments you know in terms of as a character and as what he's bringing to the table um and uh and yeah so like you mentioned about like the denial that Lori is in and kind of the the conflict and and not really even understanding why they're losing and stuff like that it's moments like where the woman that they did rescue tells her says uh you know well my husband's angry and then she says like you and Lori says i'm not angry and god i love it the woman just sort of resigns herself to not yeah. even bother to fight it. Like, just, okay, well, do, okay. I think she actually, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think she actually says, she okay. Says, but yeah. Okay. You know, like, and, and yeah. it's a great moment because she's she's totally calling Lori out without calling her out. She's just like, okay. Um, so one of the things that um, I'm going to mention this because it's kind of a, a, just a trivial insert in the midst of everything else. One of the advantages to my having seen the whole series again is i do not believe i would have written this moment down or paid any degree of attention to it had i not done this and remembered this character from a recent rewatch of the third season the television as tommy's returning briefly mentioned about a man resurrected in australia on the tv yeah yeah i don't think i would have remembered it maybe you would have (laughs) but i wouldn't have remembered old david burton so uh anyway no i mean i don't remember his name well yeah that's jeez they said his name they said his name on oh did they yes okay okay. yeah no they said his name i'm not that much of a jerk um (laughs) but no they said his name close to it (laughs) just needed a little bit um so, uh, yeah, the other thing that I had mentioned is just the, the, and the music cue chimes in when that woman that they rescued from the guilty remnant unfolds the note that says any day now. And, uh, and then that prompts her to just sort of pushes her over the edge to, in a gruesome way, take her own life and the life of her family with her. What, remind me, um, that note she opens was, I can't remember now, was that, a leftover artifact in her handbag or that was a plant bias. I can't remember exactly if, how that, if my memory serves, it's what they wrote. It's what the, when the guilty remnant like came and, mm-hmm. and infiltrated them, they wrote something and then like, uh, uh Lori, I think crumpled it up through it and then she oh, collected yeah. it and pocketed okay. it and then mm-hmm. opens it back up and it says any day now. Um, which again speaks to what Tommy was observing about the guilty remnant. It's like they, they have something. It's dreadful, but they have something. And, um, and so then, uh, obviously the scene where Lori is going in to promote her book and to possibly get it published and then just you watch it fall apart minute by minute by minute. Um, although I must say I had, uh, I still feel like it's such an explosive moment where he's like, well, no, we got to add feeling to it. What I don't know, right. Lori, and what I need to know is how do you feel about it? And in response, she freaking tackles him. <laughs> she oh, just it's wild. barrels into him. It just starts beating the fire out of him. It's a great scene. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's that. Um, Lori. But I think I, what I love about that, I'm sorry to cut you off, no, but, and we don't have to dwell much longer here, but as, as sort of, uh, suit and tie exec as that sort of publisher is in terms of a character archetype. I actually love what he's after. You know? Oh yes. Like yes. And I think if there's an underlying sentiment to this show, it's 
what are you actually feeling in response yes. to the things that are happening to you? Yes. And everyone denying and suppressing and yeah. stuffing down or shoving down a well, read. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I do. Kind of what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And and a theme I wrote down that we can uh, that it just do a hit and run here is staying okay takes so much work. Mm. Yeah. And just, right, right. you know, just something to linger with there for later. But anyway, so, I mean, I, I can talk more about this episode. We can move on to the next. Uh, any no, other? I'm, I'm, I'm good to, I'm good to move on to the next one. So the, the next one, uh, brings us back into Jarden. So that, so off ramp, if we didn't make it clear, is all Lori and Tommy. So like Nora doesn't show up. Kevin doesn't show up. Like it's all catching up with Lori and Tommy. In the next one, orange sticker, we come back to Jarden and it, it focuses specifically on the moment we had seen in the first episode that there was an earthquake. And then we saw in the second episode that following the earthquake, Kevin woke up in the now dry riverbed because the, the ground had opened up and he had a cinder block tied to his leg. No clue how he got there or what happened. And um, so Orange Sticker kind of shows us some of those events, but from Nora's perspective, what Nora was going through while all of those things uh, were taking place. I'm sure you do. You remember the significance of Orange Sticker? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you tell everybody what the significance of Orange Sticker is? Well, Reed, with <laughs> that kind of handoff. Um, yeah. In the, uh, the town of Jarden, houses with an orange sticker that have emblazoned upon them the word verified and some sort of emblem I can't recall um, is just meant to signal uh, that they have uh, verified that no one departed from this home. Right. Um, well, and, and there's another one. I, I it, okay. it's funny. I, <laughs> I was remembering orange sticker differently because I remember that in the episode guest, an orange sticker meant you were a legacy meant you had mm. experienced mm -hmm. a departure before. And so I think you're right. And, and, you know, Lindelof's savvy enough for it to have, to have dual meanings. But the first place my mind went was like, Oh, Nora is going through this again because she's a legacy. Sure. And so she's, right. you know, she's experiencing all these things again, which is the first 10 minutes of the, of the episode is her waking right. up. Kevin's not Kevin's beside gone. her. Yeah. She's, and then she steps outside. She flips out. Oh my gosh. Yes. Carrie Coon. Man, I know there's more to come. Uh, you can probably verify that <laughs> with an orange with an orange sticker, but <laughs> but her performance in this show is so just devastating. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. she is overcome with dread at what waking up to Kevin's absence means or could mean, and and leans in to that emotion. Yes. For what five minutes of screen time. And then when he shows up, just shuts it off. Yes. Just utterly turns it off. Yeah. It you're exactly right. Like a switch. Like she hugs him. When the hug when the hug is passed, she's out. She she yep. leaves. Um and yeah, so she's clearly I had referenced in last week's episode how Nora is very clearly like on the edge. She's she's built up this sort of house of cards of I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, and and um, and it's all falling apart. She moved here as a matter of geography so that she would be safe and so that no departures would happen. And and like her second 
first or second night here, then all of mm-hmm. this is is uh, is coming unraveled, and um, and so that yeah, it's it it's pretty powerful in in that aspect. Um, the only other notes that I have on this episode narratively uh, revolve around uh, Patty's continued and increased presence. Uh, so Riri. so I want to yield. Yeah, what do you, what, what a what a wondrous gift is Andown. <laughs> This this episode is the first one where she really starts owning the scenes again. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, ninety five percent of her screen time in season one, she was silent, and then she's not all of a sudden. But this is where you get just full on lived in uh, uh, Specter Patty, yes, just running off at the mouth, and I'm loving every second of it. <laughs> like, so I want to sure. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, I have a question for you. So, so say mm-hmm. what you're saying, and then I'll uh, and then I'll ask you about Patty. Well, mainly I was just scanning for for standout stuff. But what were you going to ask? So, per se? I don't think this is theme. If you feel like this is theme, we can hold it maybe for for uh, our full season two discussion. So, I'm kind of trying to interrogate both the substance of Patty's presence here and her motivations here because it feels a bit. Uh, uh, schizophrenic is too strong a word but it feels sort of dichotomized because she helps him find his phone she knows exactly where it is um but she she clearly either lies to him about other things or doesn't know other things because and i want to be very careful for listeners who are watching this as we watch it because uh, I, i will just i will just say that there are things she tells him with the same level of veracity about his phone that are simply not true and and then at the same time, she occasionally seems to be legitimately trying to sort of preserve him, uh, but then also well, at other times is trying to antagonize him. And so I feel yeah, like you just tried to lay a trap for me. I'm not laying a trap. No, I, I know, I know. But what you're saying, she's that she articulates that is untrue. I think I think we're talking semantics. I think that. Hmm. Hmm. One, you have to recall that now you don't have to recall this. You And this isn't me poking the bear here. You've seen the whole thing. I don't remember if the show definitively declares this is a expression an expression of a fractured psyche on Kevin's part. Or I, I don't I think it's more that than it is a, an actual spectral presence. I, I'm going to lean more in the fractured psyche part. Okay. But what that means then is it's also laden with Kevin's own subconscious sort of intuitions and feelings. She can tell him where the phone is because subconsciously he kind of knows. See, I thought. More or less. Yeah, see, I thought that. And what I think you're alluding to is the line, they vanished. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to spoil it. But yes, I think from a certain point of view, Kevin has told Jill last episode, nowhere safe. This is no safer than anywhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. It would it would make sense to me that on a certain level, because Kevin is so uh, uh, self hating and cynical and believes the worst about the world, that he would totally buy into the to a a notion of a second departure of some sort. Does that make sense? Like it, it makes it makes complete sense. And are there other examples where you're like, I think no, no, but okay. I'm going to try very carefully not to spoil this for our listeners. 
if what you're saying is is true about the fractured psyche, and so I thought the same exact thing, where I thought, well, if she's an extension of Kevin, well, he remembers where his phone is. And if she's an extension of Kevin, he remembers what happens. Something is shown later in the season that would undermine the premise you just expressed. So so Kevin knows more than he knows he knows. So so you know I, you know yes. And so that's that's as much as I can say it. Kevin knows more about everything than he realizes he knows. Because remember one thing that is that is present to our to viewers who are only up to episode 4 is Kevin sleepwalks. Right. And and so if we view Patty as an extension of a fractured psyche but knowing like maybe she's privy to the information that sleepwalking Kevin has mm-hmm. sleepwalking Kevin knows more than she tells him. And so mm-hmm. that's the piece yeah, that I'm like, know. yeah. And so that's why it's, it, it's a bit of a struggle for me and I'm just going to have to let the mystery be. I'm not being facetious because I think that there's there. I do feel like the show makes a better case that Patty is an extension of a fractured psyche than it is that she is an actual sort of sure. spectral attachment with agency. Right. right, right. Exactly. Um, I, th- I think the show makes a better case that she's just a, 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 you know, the way pulling back to haunting of Hill house, she is like live to Hugh, you know, like it, it's, it's how Kevin sees Patty being. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, but that's the part that I couldn't quite grasp because regardless of her, the, the, the substantiation of her presence or not, she is a uh, representative of the inner turmoil that Kevin has, whether she's there well, as an I actual mean, ghost. One of my not. favorite exchanges and, and maybe thus far, one of my favorite Justin Thoreau moments is his heartbreaking delivery of the line. I don't want to kill myself. Mm, to Patty. Yes. That yes. she then rebuts with, well, you're certainly entitled to your opinion. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad we finally talked about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my yes. God. Yes. I don't want to kill myself. Well, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. What a brilliant bit of scripting that is. Yes. No, it really, it really, really is. Um, although uh, her uh, Rick Astley impression is negligible. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little odd. No Joyce weirder there, but- than the freaking morose dirge of you're the one that i want from greece like like <laughs> well yeah but that's that was a, a piece of soundtracking right it is yes yeah yes. yeah I, I found that kind of fascinating choice the rick astley one was more like is is the joke that she's rick rolling kevin i mean sincerely i i, I couldn't could figure be. out that was what was happening there no it could be uh, which could feels be. like a super super like <laughs> cultural moment imported into the world of the leftovers like a really odd oh, sort of okay. thing there yeah um uh isaac gives us some, some interesting character bit on john he says ain't yes. nothing more dangerous than a man who don't believe in nothing mm-hmm. um nora in her efforts to i'm just throwing out a few notes here nora in her efforts to shore up her own feelings um says to jill of whether evie departed or not the flood happened three years ago, and the mm. ark took on all the animals it needed. Why, in God's name, would it take on any more? Yes. Which I actually really loved as a sort of analogy in how she rationalizes what she's experiencing. Yeah, here. absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I thought there was one more here. Talk about Neil's weird proclivities. 
She was pooping on him, Kevin. <laughs> so disgusting. <laughs> married for 16 years or whatever she is. Married for 16 years. Never asked me to poop on him. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like. And down. And down. She's so good. It's like, I believe you. I believe you. You know? Oh, my gosh. Um, As a last little narrative beat, when Kevin is standing you know, we know that Kevin knows he's been out there and is trying to play off his presence yes. and, and look like he's joining the search party for Evie and the gang. And that moment when the cop says to John, they think they pulled a palm print off the window. Like your heart just yeah. sinks. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, this is not going to go well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You've got two equally damaged and angry men <laughs> headed straight for an inevitable collision. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all I got, man. All right. Um, so I guess there's nothing more to say than. Uh, <clears throat> Turns out that Reed has finished the entire series while Nathan and listeners are uh, moving at the agreed-upon pace of two episodes at a time of a single episode of the Fear of God podcast. But these are the things we do for marriage. And uh, next week, we'll check in with episodes five and six, which I don't have notes on or titles for because I've not watched them yet. But this has been a look at episodes three and four of season two. Of the leftovers. But I can tell you more about the episodes. <laughs> five and like, six. Oh, <laughs> episodes five and six are titled. Five, five is a really good one, so make sure you stay stay tuned for that. And I hate you. <laughs> right when you said that, I was like, damn it. I don't know if he's just being funny or not now. Now I want to go watch it, but now I'm just pissed that he did it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so without further ado, pick it up here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for yet another installment of Hashtag TV Guideposts, where we head back to Jarden, Texas, and HBO's The Leftovers Season 2. This time covering specifically episodes 5 and 6, called No Room at the Inn and Lens, featuring special foreign correspondent, Secretary of State at the Fear of God podcast, Vera Gowdy, and my regular co-host, that other guy. Wow. I just got demoted hard. <laughs> Speaking of demotion, though, I would like to point out that I am wearing a Fear of God t-shirt. Foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy is drinking from a Fear of God mug. What uh, what Fear of God attire or, or other swag do you have going on right in this moment, Mr. Lackey? I mean, my face is all over all the artwork. It's true. Um, it's true. It's true. It's the hat. It's the hat. <laughs> the official fear of God hat. Available so, only in the Lackey household. Yeah. And we're just, we're just, just ribbing you there, Lackey. Um, mm, yeah. It feels fun. Now, I'm curious. Uh, so, one, Vera, knowing we're ultimately going through the whole of the series, I knew you had started, but I haven't kept up. I haven't asked you lately where y'all are. D- are you past this what are you generally thinking of the show do you do you what what are your feelings about the leftovers we finished it a long time ago we watched all three seasons yeah all right (laughs) um yeah we pretty much just binged it um and i 
like the series. I don't think I like it as much as you two. I'm sorry, but I I like it. Um, how, do we, how do we mute her? Read. Um, is yeah. it doable? On this one? No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'll see myself out. My wife okay. feels the same as you do. Vera. I don't know if exactly the same, but yes, uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um. And I think that. Like, I'm not saying that nothing is well done, but like, and I think this is intentional. There's a lot of feeling of unsatisfaction um, because mm. I think that that's kind of the intent of the show is like, not everything gets explained all just the time. Just let the mystery and so, be, Vera. Right. So they just let the mystery be, but that just bothers me as a human <laughs> being. I can't, I just want everything explained to me. <laughs> just yeah. tell me why things are. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because, and unlike y'all, I did finish the series once through when it aired, but I have not blazed on ahead. Um, I'm keeping up with the listeners um, as they track. Just I don't know, courtesy thing. Um, and <laughs> and do you, uh, do you do you need some validation? Do you need a do you I, need a, a lot and information? Often, yes, actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did notice. And speaking specifically to episodes five and six, uh, No Room at the End and Lens. Now I'm not asking for this to be resolved by the two of you who have more recently watched it. That's not ribbing. I just, I'm stating, I don't want to know that I want to rediscover if it happens, but to your point, Vera, I love little things like Matt discussing the moment Mary woke up and us just having being forced where at least where the series is at right now, us being forced to trust him on whether that is true or not. And so there's that instance. And then there was another one dog on it. Something that occurred, I think, in last night in the sixth episode that is a reference to an event that happens off screen that you're just sort of asked to assume. Regardless, most signified by the Matt and Mary element. But, I, you know, see, I'm the nerd who's like, I really love this. I love that it asks me to just sort of make a choice. You know, do I do I want to believe that Matt's telling the truth, even though we may or may not ultimately get that confirmed? So, so knowing that, Reed, I think you, I'll, I'll tee you up here. I think you've referenced No Room at the Inn. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't, didn't you cite this as maybe even your favorite of the series or at least one of the? This No Room at the Inn is my favorite episode of the series. Speak, um, speak to that a little bit. So, um, Matt is not even my favorite character, but, uh, there, there is some substance to, what he goes through in this particular episode that really resonates with me for some reason. Um, and, and some of them I kind of have a, a distant shape of in, in my own mindset and, and heartscape. But um, a lot of it is just, I find some profound resonance of the, in the last 10 minutes of this episode mm-hmm. um, that n- while there's many other moments throughout the run of the show that give me a lot of, you know, just put me through a wave of different emotions. For the most part, this is the, those last 10 minutes just uh, speak so much to the, the perseverance of faith, uh, sometimes stubbornly and sometimes foolishly. And, and something that uh, maybe nuancing a bit, and, and Nathan, maybe you would recommend this as well, or maybe you would echo this uh, more so than I think you would. Um, in terms of the whole let the mystery be, I, I feel like what I've come to accept about myself in art is I am extremely comfortable with metaphor. So when metaphors are played with, I don't really need 
very much explanation of how they came to be, or I don't need a lot of context for exactly uh, even what they mean. I just, it represents uh, sort of a metaphorical thing and something like, I'm just going to go ahead and skip into the the plot of the episode. The episode centers on Matt. Uh, not very many episodes in this particular season just zone in on one individual person, but this one is all about Matt. And um, Matt is trying to take Mary to get some screening, and on his way back in meets uh, a, a multitude of hazards trying to get back into Jarden. So where painful. they have Oh, it is awful. But there's something about... Him ultimately making a decision. Uh, there's a moment in the middle of the episode where he goes to the outskirts of the town. And for those who are, you know, are not necessarily watching the show outside of this town of Jarden, Texas, there's a whole group of like, you know, vagabonds, travelers. Uh, the, there's a lot of people outside just kind of waiting for the opportunity to get into Jarden. And out there for reasons that they never really fully go into, there's a man stark naked in these stocks, uh, in these like, uh, um, I forget what they're called in, in traditional historical language other than stocks. I think they have a, a, a prefix to that. But um, he's in these stocks and somebody there asks Matt, because Matt stumbles upon this and sees it. And she says, do you want to set him free? And he says, yes. And then she says, well, take his place. And it's just a moment. It's a passing moment. There's lots of passing moments that happen in this episode, but something about him making the decision to come back and actually set the man free and actually take his place for everything that Matt is going through just resonates so profoundly uh, in my heart and spirit. And I think that elevates this particular episode um, above any, any other singular episode, though there are probably moments in the show that I like more. No other singular episode and singular conclusion hits me as hard as the end of this one does. So yeah, it just kind of hits you with an oar and calls you Brian, huh? <laughs> that's the one thing I'm like, because <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert, you don't ever find out no. anymore about that. No, like no, no. nothing, not another word about it. Yeah. And I'm let like, the mystery be. Come on, Vera. just let <laughs> it go. Exactly. Roll with it. And so, so I love, but, I actually do yeah. love, and this is just my weirdo brain. I love the thought of what the writer's room was like when they crafted that scene. It's like, mm. let's see. What's what the, is the weirdest thing right, you can call right, him right, when he hits right, him with an oar? Right. Or, no, no, no. Brian? I mean, that's, that's like several steps down the line, Vera. What is the weirdest thing we can have happen when Matt approaches this person? Um, no, no, no. It was just, it, it was just an, it was just an accident because in the writer's room, they were just saying like, Hey, what should, what should we have him say when he hits him with an oar? And then somebody turned around and looked like and said, and asked, and asked Brian yeah. in the room, you know, like Brian, like to get his attention. Somebody else in the room said, that's it. Perfect. Writing it down. Done. And, and that was it. <laughs> Done. And then they just moved Let's on. Put it in there. So I will say, yes. I think one of my favorite moments in this episode, other than like you noted there, read the, the very final one, uh, the, because it's my turn scene is mm -hmm. the power. And cause I, cause I knew Matt ends up back outside. I knew this didn't resolve perfectly for Matt and Mary. So when uh, Kevin and John show up at the visitor center, I was like, something's going to happen. I think it's a conflict between John and Matt, but I couldn't remember exactly what. And we've seen mm, enough gotcha. of John at this point. This is the fifth episode of the season that we've seen him to know this is a very troubled man who has deep, deep issues. And there's no magic and miracle. No, mm -hmm. no miracles and miracle. And, and, he challenges Matt's story. Not only does he challenge it, he tells him to say months from now, you got lonely and took advantage of your comatose wife, which is just wretched and awful. 
And Matt initially, and honestly, this moment, I was like, oh, God, because Matt uh, agrees. Remember? Do you remember this? Right. Matt says, yes, yes that's what I'm going to tell them. And then as John is turning away, Matt just says, what happened to you? And it's just this amazing mm-hmm. acting moment between the two of them. That's going to, to me, have echoes of the Regina King, Carrie Coon scene in the subsequent episode, but just this great showdown of character motivation that I just really loved. Absolutely. Any, Absolutely. Uh, one uh, thing. Yeah, go ahead, Reed. Well, no, no I'll just mention one thing about that, um, that, uh, and then Vera, we're going to let you just rattle off for a little while. Cause we've been talking for a while, but, um, <laughs> culminating. She knows in- how this goes. <laughs> culminating in the uh before he goes and sets the man free that powerful wonderful confrontation with john again on the road at the end where he like hands him and oh, says yeah, i don't yeah. want where he's like i don't want your wristband and then he says you know my wife woke up and he said and when she does again I'm going to find you and we're going to have a talk and I'm yeah, like oh my that's great. god that's, that's great. It, it's it's just wonderful because for all this and 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 yeah Matt is is a very complicated human being but um but there is something remarkable and extraordinary about his stubborn capacity to believe um that uh that is in its own way in a in a almost foolhardy way at times uh, rather inspiring to me so um so anyway but that's yeah i love that vera what do you think about any of this yeah these i think um these two episodes might be my favorite episodes this season um mm. and this one episode five is my favorite episode of the series as well i just mm. like um eccleston's performance is so just good. so good and i love how he plays like a stubbornness of faith but also like being really naive at the same time yes oh my god yes and just creates such a, a believable character and a sympathetic character. Um, but also one to pity, you know what I mean? Mm, like there's just great. so much to like, but you can't see, I'm wearing my, um, weeping angel earrings in honor of him today because I was like, Oh, what themed wow. earrings today? cause he was the, one of the doctor. He's the ninth doctor, I believe. Yes, he, yes, he was. Um, yes, he was. And yeah. And I've liked, and I've liked him as an actor ever since, uh, I saw him in doctor who. And I think that like, especially this episode is my favorite performance of him in anything that I've seen. Like, it's just so, mm. so powerful, so raw. And especially that end scene, um, when he goes up into the stocks and, and takes the man's place. Um, it's just, yeah, so good. Well, and what so an good. impressive, and we'll get to six and six is great too, but what an impressive, just from a, story and scripting construction standpoint the gamut of range this character displays read you it pinged for me a minute ago when you described him as a complex human because you said the word complex and then my thought was character and then you said human and i was like huh but to your credit like the 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 range of human emotion the actor as Matt Jamison shows in this episode is staggering. And I thought it, yeah. it it happens initially when the um let your love flow sequence is happening at the beginning. And actually what I wrote down is like how beautiful and touching and tender he is with Mary and how laudable of course that is. But then what two minutes later in the same sequence, how frustrated he gets right of just yeah. that. And, and it's, it's, it's so human. Like, Mm-hmm. There is tenderness, there is gentleness, um, but there is also ultimately frustration. Um, it is a very, a very Jobin character, and that that 
continues to come yeah, out. Yeah, and anyone who's been a caregiver to somebody, like in any capacity, whether it's you care for somebody who um, has a disability or children or, or whatever the case may be, like you, that moment is so real because mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can just change in an instant um, from being like happy and everything's great to being the most frustrated and then so guilty and then back again, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And Job is really, I, I want to get to lens, but Job is really like the <laughs> yeah. best. I do. Um, Job is really like the, the best sort of way to, to, to wrap around exactly what this character I think is experiencing is, is he is to me, one of the things that I think, uh, people forget and and Job is a complex book and so there's a lot to go into but um, one of the things that I think people forget when they talk about Job they always talk about his suffering they don't talk about his questions and his and his sort of stubbornness and his um, and his uh, ultimate confrontation of like hey what have I done tell me my fault you know like what what is going on here and I think Matt exhibits a tremendous amount of that where he he very much is you know, motivated by this stalwart belief in these miraculous, extraordinary things. But at the same time, uh, I love the uh, the word you chose, naive. Like, the man needs to stop being a good Samaritan. Good Samaritanism does not go well for him. Oh, my gosh. Well he for breaks him. his hand. Ugh. Oh, that's awful. Oh, it's terrible. It's so terrible. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's I, I, I do, like, it's not even so much that I love Matt. It's just that I love that a character like Matt is in a story like this because he is so complex and he's so interesting. And um, and and as Nora says in the next episode, uh, nobody does it like you, Matt. Like, <laughs> like it's just he's he's a very um, uh, interesting and a unique individual in television. Is that history. when so, there, is that when she's out at the stocks? I can't remember where that. Yes, happens. when she comes back to the stocks. Um, which to pivot into sure. Lens, since Lens is um, uh, primarily about Erica, and we learn a lot more about Erica, played by Regina King, um, there is a moment when Nora, who has taken care at the end of uh, No Room at the End, she's taken care of Mary, and Matt has gone to sort of subject himself to the repentance stocks for like however long, um, and uh, Mary comes out to join him. He has you know, to some degree, won over yeah. these people to the degree that they let him, you know, no longer be naked. They He's let just him like doing his down. laundry. He's like, it's yeah. all good. Did, <laughs> did he say it was because he refused to let someone take his place? Yes. Yeah. He said he refused huh. to let some, and, and he that. said, yeah, he said, I refuse to let somebody take my place. And then he said, uh, uh, suffering breeds compassion. And uh, and so, yeah, somehow, and that's when Nora says to him, nobody does it like you, Matt. Like, <laughs> like awesome. it's just, it, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty wonderful. But that's not even, that's only a few minutes right. in this otherwise uh, uh, huge uh, episode. Uh, Vera, why don't you kick off a uh, conversation about Lens? Yeah, um, Lens is a cool episode. I liked the concept of what a lens is and like how that freaks Nora out throughout this episode. But like you start to wonder because there's them when the people buy her house, like it was at MIT or something, they buy Mm -hmm. her house and they say it was a proximity thing. Um, So if she had just been on that other side of the room, then she would have gone to. And now there's this other theory that she could be a lens um, where um, just basically whoever she touches, whoever is around her is at risk of being, um, taken and uh or getting departed and uh um 
and then parallel that with um, Regina King's character and like her struggle and what she's going through in um, not wanting to believe her daughter is departed, but like kind of arriving at that. And especially when mm. she blows up um, during that meeting, I That's can't remember so what good. it was. That's amazing. It's so good. The fun Jerry, idea, yeah. don't kill the goat. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That whole, that whole freak out. Oh my God. Yeah. is so powerful. Like, so, so the episode itself, again, for context for people who are just kind of barely keeping up, is this focuses in on John Murphy, who we've talked about extensively, focuses in on his wife. And we begin Erica. to see, Erica is her name, and uh, we begin to see different things that she sort of navigates her world through. She's deaf, uh, which is, uh, you know, a prominent, they, they, they focus on it quite a bit, but it, it is not, uh, you know, pivotal to the plot so much. It's pivotal to the character, but not to the plot. And um, her daughters obviously are missing and they're holding a fundraiser in town. But in the middle of the fundraiser, I love, love, love so much. You mentioned the let your love flow moment from Mm -hmm. uh, Matt in the in the first episode. I love that she just calls out the ritualism that is happening in the town. You know, she's just like, you know, just because you slaughtered a goat on that day. Now you slaughter a goat every day. You're wearing your wedding wedding dress. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And and I just love the, the moment. That I can just hear in my head because it just is is electrifying is when she says and shouts to the whole room, we are the 9,261 and we are spared. And you hear every range of emotion she's that so she's good. going through when she says that. She's Regina King is such a powerful performer and um, and she delivers such, you know, venom and 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 just rejection of all of this ritualism of all of what she would later in a much calmer way call pretend and uh it's just oh, man, well and i think i mean you could do a whole thematic episode on this episode of leftovers because i just love like you're calling out this this notion of what is it because i wouldn't put john and erica on the same worldview level you know like the same same having the same perspective but she is calling out like you use the word multiple times. And I read ritualism of like, you know, and, and you hear the audience gasp, right? Like, like there's, oh, yeah. there's audible troubled response to how elevated she's getting by tearing these things down. Um, I, I do want to pivot on the concept of the lens and um, Vera, you brushed up against this, but like, I actually love some of the world building of this episode. Like I, I, one thing I love about the leftovers is the intimacy of the character dynamics, but it's just fun to kind of hear what is going on in the world of the universe of this show. And Mm. you get a lot in this episode, you know, there's the, the new algorithm from Japan and, and lensing just as an idea. And then when Nora finally indulges the phone call, you know, that (laughs) the MIT scientist thinks the demon Azrael resides in you. I mean, it's just wild. That they did so much homework on like, what, what is this world hold right now? You know, Mm. like the world of this show, what, what is at work in it? Um, we, if, um, we can talk about whatever else we want or kind of land at that climactic scene between Nora and Erica. And I remember the first time through watching this series and something that I love so deeply about it. Now you have to remember, you got to, got to juxtapose this with, this is at the time when like Walking Dead was at its height, um, and several of shows like it. And one thing I just always love about Leftovers is its drama is not drawn from just, 
okay, who's going to die this episode or whatever, like this real kind of paper thin narrative choice, right? Creative narrative choices. To me, one of the things I love so much about the show is that the actual drama is rooted in character conflict and motivation. And I, and mm-hmm. remarkably, I think that's hard to find. Um, but it's exhibited so dramatically in this culminating scene between Erica and Nora as set up. Nora has stolen this, this survey, this questionnaire that the DSD does because the DSD is trying to get Erica to answer it to find out, Hey, did Evie, her daughter disappear or just, just run away. And Nora thinks she's doing a favor here and it ends up having the tables turned on her. How, how, um, I'll, I'll throw it to you as our guest here. How do you kind of read that scene? You know, like what, what kind of impact did that scene have on you? Um, at first I like, I picture it in my head as like a face off, like, cause, and it, the camera makes it look yes. like that too, right? Like it's back and forth, back and forth. And it's like question, answer, question, answer. And they both keep everything brief. But then when, um, when Erica flips it on Nora and starts asking her like the questions about her children mm-hmm. um, and then starts to talk about um, what she's been doing with the bird in the box mm-hmm. um, and that she you know, wished her daughter would be okay without her. And then the next day she disappeared. And then that bringing like Nora back to her grief about like when she walked to the kitchen counter and like wished her family away and then they did right. disappear. And like, it's just, it's so powerful and, and very well acted. Um, and I think does at the beginning of the episode, does Nora throw a rock in her window? Yes. And yeah, then at the end of the does. episode, yes. Erica's Erica like right back at you. Like, I love that they are neck and neck in terms <laughs> of like this face off that they're having. Um, yeah. yeah, it's so good. One of the things I love the most about, so that, that scene between the two of them is so volcanic, but one of the things I like, Regina King is just uh, next level as a performer because the camera is like this close. The camera is just this close. And yet you can still register these very tiny little head bobs and these lip quivers as she's sort of, she's in it, you know, uh, she's gaining emotion as she's trying to unpack this as calmly as possible. And the fact that the camera is so still, I think a, a, a lesser performer might have just tried to play it very uh, stone and very uh, stoic. But Regina King, either by instinct or by craft, maybe both, um, knew like, no, I need to, I need to show a little bit of what this character is sort of trying to swallow down while she's trying to express this thing. And it is, I mean, it is electric. And then the fact that you just have, and Carrie Coon is is outstanding no as yeah. well, you know, exactly. So the fact that you talked about, like, this is just rooted in character drama, this scene is one of the most gripping and galvanizing scenes of the entire series. And it is two back and forth close-ups of just the actors' faces doing what they do. It is. But more than that, it's outstanding. what is the scene? It's a questionnaire. Like, that's yes. the text. And yes. they bring so much to it. Um, Powerful. You know, and I, I didn't even mean to stumble into this, but mentioned a moment ago of how Erica's trying to dispel these false rituals, but in saying that she and John are still at odds, she effectively says the magic happened. I caused it, right? Like that's sort of what she's mm. saying in her story of the bird is I wished Evie to be okay. Now Evie's gone. And, and, which, which again is just a, a signal of, for me personally, one of the things I love about the show is about 
the meaning we attach to things. And in a world with events as fantastical and insane as what happens in the world of the leftovers, there's a lot of room for what meaning you end up attaching to these things. Um, and there's so many, I mean, there's so many people in, in, it's, it's less so in the room at no room at the end episode, but it is extremely prominent in lens. There are people desperately grasping in their minds and in their activities for control because you have like, this is what Erica called out at the, at the mm-hmm. town hall meeting at the fundraiser is she's like, you're still wearing your wedding dress and you're still slaughtering goats and you're, you know, and then I love the shade she threw on John because she's like, oh, there are no miracles in miracle, but, but you give him a pass, right. you know, like right. it's, it's great. Um, but then even in her, like what I love uh, as well about that scene between her and Nora is that her and Nora are both in their way, scratching at a truth beyond their own understanding because mm-hmm. um, Erica is like sort of when she's needling Nora and she kind of, I, I will say this, I, I adore the character of Nora Durst, but she deserves everything she gets in that scene because she is being yes. cold-hearted and cruel to Erica and she is grasping for <laughs> control rough. of the situation. Go back to your thought here. It's rough when she, as a fan of Carrie Coon and as a fan of Nora Durst, when she's like, I've evolved, I've moved past. Like, oh, girl, this is not. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Do you know who you're right. sitting across from? That's, That's right. That's King. right. She don't play. And- <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, man. Like she, she threw the question at her, and then she threw the rock at her. And like, I'm just like, oh my god, she's yeah. She, Erica, totally has the upper hand in that scene, and I think it's very obvious. Um, and I think it also speaks to the fact that that Nora is in fact just on the edge of the cliff. She's just hanging by a thread, uh, trying to convince herself and grasp at straws that she is truly okay, that she's truly safe, that everything is truly fine. Um, and uh, and so yeah, it's it's an incredibly powerful episode. I have to say, uh, and and then if we have any more, we can talk about it or we can move on. But um, the Simon and Garfunkel song at the end. Oh, absolutely. The Simon, because I'm a big Paul Simon fan, specifically a Simon and Garfunkel fan, and the um, the Simon and Garfunkel song "I Am a Rock" is not is not merely a clever play on the fact that the rock throwing begins and ends the episode, but it is a song about delusion. Hmm. It is a song about because the song ends by saying a rock feels no pain and an island never cries, and that's what the song has been refraining over and over again: is I am a rock, I am an island, and the last lines of the song are a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. So it is a song that I've interpreted it as a song about the delusions we we tell ourselves to keep us from facing the realities of, of whatever it is that we're trying to avoid and, and, and powerful song choice. And there's more really, Simon and really... Garfunkel to come on the leftovers. <laughs> there sure is. There sure well, and is we can move past, but I got to give lip service here. That's a powerful final scene too. I mean, Kevin's oh, confession. Oh my, oh my gosh. That's gosh. That's like, that's like a horror movie send off. Like, Oh my God, what? We just had this yeah, powerful absolutely. character interaction with Erica and Nora. And you're then finishing with, Kevin confessing about Patty and responding to the fact that he sees her there, but we as the audience aren't privy to that. Oh my gosh. Riri, take us out of the TV guide post. Well, uh, yeah, uh, before yeah. I do, like Vera, did you have anything else you wanted to say? Anything else you wanted to highlight? No, good? no, no. Okay. All right. Well, then there's nothing else to do, but <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, try to stay calm. That was not a rock through your window. That was just an episode of TV Guideposts. So we are now leaving Jardin, Texas. Hopefully they'll let us back in as long as we've got our wristbands. Um, but if not, 
Nathan will be appearing in the repentance stocks. For, uh, oh no! Small, a small fee. You can go to uh, fearofgodpodcast.com, oh, no, hit the subscribe no. button. You'll, uh, you'll maybe. It's my turn. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's, it's his turn. But uh, we want to, we want to very much thank uh, foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy for being here on this with us. And June, tune in next week where we'll be uh, going to even stranger places and even stranger ways. Uh, you'll have to check that out to see what we're talking about. But uh, we'll see you next time on hashtag. TV guideposts. TV guideposts. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about? Uh, oh, okay, but wait. But wait. But wait. I don't know that we need wait, to. Wait. But. No, no, no. First things what? first. What? Actually, actually, technically, second things second. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, everyone, once again for joining us for this week's hashtag TV guideposts, where we are once again visiting the city of Chardon, Texas, and the national park known as Miracle, and maybe to places above and beyond all of that. As we welcome our very special guest, Ian Olson, and uh, your usual co-hosts, Nathan and myself, to this week's installment of The Leftovers Season 2, Episodes 7 and 8, on this week's Hashtag TV Guideposts. Ian! Ian, you're here, and so so we made a real uh, intentional effort to have you on roughly the middle of this run we're working on you're you're yeah. gonna be you were on infinity war um spoiler alert we're gonna have you back on for end game um presuming we all last that long um and we wanted <laughs> to have you back on here in the middle um mainly in part to rehash some of these themes we're looking at um and also to kind of I, i'm curious and i know reed is too shares that curiosity kind of your take uh, i know you're a mutual part of the uh Lindelof appreciation fan club um kind of get your take on the leftovers now that we're uh almost two-thirds of the way through it on the show and specifically today we're discussing episode seven a most powerful adversary and episode eight international assassin so before we dive too specifically into the specific specifics of those two just generally speaking um what are your what are some of your feelings about the leftovers um this is my absolutely first time through it at all. And so I don't have a very thick account, I, I guess, of how I feel about it. You know, Kristen keeps asking me, like, what do you think now? You know, and, um, <laughs> and you're like, you're, back you're, off. You're, <laughs> I feel what I feel. Okay. <laughs> Let the episode finish. Okay. Then I'll tell you my thoughts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the theme song isn't even over. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think that season two is monumentally superior in many ways to season mm. one for the most part. And that's not to say that I like strongly disliked season one. It just feels like a soft reboot as of season two. And, and honestly, 
for a long time with season one. Following uh, the pilot really caught my attention, and I mean, it just really, it really roughed up and pepper sprayed my feels in a big way. Um, wow, th- there were some plainclothes federal agents uh, pulling me off wow. the street here with, we go. with that one. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> it's been, it been ten minutes, man. We yeah. went there. It's great, you know, nor- normal, normal, typical uh, democratic procedural stuff like that. So, sure. um, um, but then I felt I had this meta question for the next several episodes after that. Like, am I supposed to feel the way that I do right now about this? How it feels kind of meandering in a way. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. that could be it. I mean, that's what everyone is doing right right now, post sudden departure. And it wasn't really until we got to um, kind of Cairo, but episodes following Cairo where I thought, okay, there is there is indeed something substantial going on here mm. that I can kind of like hook my affections onto. Um, mm. And I really enjoyed Prodigal Sun Returns. But then uh, there was a whole new horizon open to season two and from the absolutely just gonzo, like, 2001-esque, like, beginning of the yeah. first episode. Um, <laughs> right. w- which is such a clear, like, I don't know what this means, but it's cool. Um, right. You know, and like, okay, all right, do, do it, do it, fine. Um, I am enjoying it. I don't, it just, sorry, sorry, just, like, my, my audacity is always on. I'm You're not fine. sure, I'm not sure yet what are referring to when they're like definitely, definitely one of the two best TV shows ever made. You know, like that guy, I'm like, okay, get your finger out of my face and I, I don't yet see what you're what you're talking about and I'm not trying to diss it, but I don't, I don't know where that level hyperbole is coming from sir. Well, I yeah, just, well I just Ian, you know what? You, the, you what, go ahead, what, you, no, oh, no, Okay, no. it's yeah. a thing. Ian, you think I'm scared to do battle with you? I am so desperate to do battle. So let's go back. Let's go effing die. <laughs> what I was picturing yeah. was Ian evidently on, walks into Walmart where people just like, come definitely, <laughs> definitely one of the two best. He's like, whoa, I was just looking for some spicy nacho Doritos, y'all. I just did. I did not oh, need look, the I'm finger. Just, I'm just here for the granola, okay? And also wear a mask, please, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's your mask? Put on a mask. <laughs> Put your finger out of my face. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, no, Karen, uh, I didn't read your post on Reddit. Just leave me alone, okay? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like, I, I gotta I gotta say that like the more that I'm in the thick of this show, I do think there is a particular sensibility. And I think I'm even coming to a place to where I would almost define it. And that's this sort of those who are really comfortable and I would even dare say like galvanized and inspired by metaphors, particularly ones that leave you with a sense of melancholy rather than a sense of deliberate hope. Um, And I think Leftovers is kind of geared towards that. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, Ian, have sensibilities that wouldn't align with that. But I I think I'm becoming more and more aware as like my, my wife has watched it now and she had some you know, relatively mixed feelings about it in general. Uh, Vera wasn't happy. Yeah, Vera was on the show last week, and she also was kind of, you know, sort of mixed feelings about the show. And I think it's just a very particular sensibility that if you're 
if you're on board with that wavelength can be very galvanizing. But if you're not on board with that wavelength, for whatever reason, not saying that you don't get the show or anything, that's not the implication. It's just if if that's not if that's not speaking to you in that moment, there it, it's a very particular kind of taste, like you know, well, any anything and, else. And that's one of the things that like I am kind of just <laughs> transparently confused about because when we were talking about doing this together, you know, I told Nathan, like, dude, sign me up for melancholy and, and despair. Yes, right on. Um, <laughs> because I just have, like, that magnetism to me for whatever reason, that, that perverse enjoyment of, like, people being severely bummed out. And, like, that's, right. like, that's what I wanted Endgame to... You know what my major disappointment with uh, Captain America Civil War was? Like, that no one died, and that there wasn't, like, subsequent, like, grieving over uh. hero losses and the fracturing <laughs> of the family. Um, it's like, twisted. I want my Marvel dark, okay? I want to go dark. I, That's, you got not, the DCE for Zach that. Not Snyder dark. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want it to be good, though. That's the problem. So, um, yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, that's, it, come, come at me, bro. No. Give me your Justice no, League. Give me your bat V soups. <laughs> I, I will I will currently at least in your in your current state of mind uh uh maybe maybe disagree on your on your leftovers take but your 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 DC movie take is you're not going to get controversy here. Well, it's um, and it's not even a full take. It's 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 right, just I know, like I know. I'm never sure exactly how bummed I'm supposed to be at any moment in the leftovers. Like severely or <laughs> or like limping. You know, um, both. Maybe I just just both. pick one. Okay. Yeah. In the spirit of that, let's let's <laughs> zoom in a little bit on, sure. uh, you know, since you're sort of rising to the occasion here, a most powerful adversary, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, tonally or rather uh, narratively specifically about the the relationship between Kevin and Patty, Kevin. <laughs> she, she pooped on him, Kevin. Sixteen years of marriage never asked me to poop oh on my, him. Oh my! Oh, <laughs> all the wonderful moments in this show. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. That's that's it, huh? <laughs> it's the delivery. It's the delivery. <laughs> it just gets me every that's time. A, See, you're talking about how all right, how sad and maudlin it is. I find it uh, just hysterical. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! Okay, read. Find us a place to land. Sure, on sure, sure. Episode okay. seven. Okay, so I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start getting into a couple of things that I really, you know, that I really like. Um. Uh. So first of all, I want to talk because she's largely absent from the episode. I want to talk for a moment about Nora. Um. I sympathize with Nora's freakout, yeah. and admittedly, Kevin had the worst timing in the world. But uh, particularly on this second go round. I was very frustrated at Nora's insistence to him earlier, like, you can tell me whatever, and I'll be able to take it. And she's clearly wrong. And it's a lack of self-awareness on her part, because the moment he busted out with, I'm seeing a dead woman, she's out. And admittedly, yes, his timing was terrible, but she leaves. Leaves him handcuffed to the bed, keys under the pillow, but that's it. After that, she is just gone. And uh, and so again, I, I sympathize, but I also is it, it just solidifies that Nora is just any version of okayness she has, she's just a house of cards. So um, that you know those those kind of 
that's kind of my formal thoughts on on uh, Nora and the the difficulties that I have with with her character. Her that having been said, I really really love this episode and the way it creates a crucible for the dynamic between Kevin and Patty. Um, that like so much. I just love the way they've done this whole Patty's not really there. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking when I was trying to conceptualize, like, well, what would I do if I had this voice that was there? And, and and of course, my mind would try to imagine, like, oh, well, I would just do my best to ignore them. But they do a pretty good job of seeing how you can't really ignore her. She interjects right. yeah. at all the wrong, all, all the wrong moments. Um, she says very infuriating things. And you really feel for him because you're like, you want for him to reach this place where we're just like, I'm not talking to you and I'm not giving you any attention. But when that little voice is like popping into your head, every few, don't tell him, don't tell him, you know, like it's, oh, yeah. So anyway, what did she say? Well, she says, don't tell her because I she's know, talking no, about Jill. That's but, okay. Yeah. You don't tell her. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. You done did it now, Kevin. <laughs> um, it's going to be a rough one. Well, it's funny because just, uh, two weeks ago, yeah. Time, time is a face on the water. Like I said already. Um, Reed, you and I had conversed about the nature of Patty, and you know, yes, clearly knowing as listeners do that you have finished the series once more, um, and I had not. Third I time. had forgotten the nature of these kind of episodes of like, okay, well, they pretty decisively, eh, they they pretty heavily suggest it might not just be a fragment of his right. psyche. Um, right. But it is, in fact, this kind of ethereal thing. Ian, what sort of thoughts do you have on this episode? What I liked was that Kevin finally became... Kevin has, like, two modes in the series up until this point. It's looking utterly confused. Like, <laughs> you know, or... or like does, just, What does it look like? I, I'm not as hot. You know, I'm not, I'm not Kevin Garvey's junior... But uh, you know, uh, you're close. Don't don't say yourself okay. short. There. Okay, <laughs> okay, maybe, but I I certainly don't have his apps. That is for that is for certain. So, um, who does uh, his, <laughs> his 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 other his other mood is just like rage. So he's either befuddled or he is just spilling over with with anger. And yeah, yeah this yeah, episode yeah, yeah. still both in spades, but it also was him, um, moving beyond the kind of passivity where he's simply responding to what's given him um, mm-hmm. because that, that is what really characterizes him. Um, his entire backstory, his, you know, presence um, is uh, doing what it seems like this situation right here calls for. And then being resentful that that's what he had to do and he has to live with it. And this is him acting decisively seeking out this person, this person, this person weighing answers and then saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Not simply like, well, this is the next thing that has come down the conveyor belt for me to do. So I, I found it a deepening of his character and I appreciated that. When I love to that point, and maybe this is what you're alluding to. I find the scene when she shows up in the trailer, highly gripping. I mean, that is, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when, when it's this psychological gamesmanship between the two of them, you know, yeah. he says, do you want me to do this or not? Take this poison that will kill him because, you know, watch the episode. Um, do you want me to do yep. this or not? And she says, 
of course I want you to, Kevin. No, she does. I don't think she says Kevin. But uh, she says, of she course, says, oh, I want I you to. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> want you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in presumably her mind, in whatever form that is, is is trying to reverse psychology him. Right. But we know, and he references the first episode of this season, and he says, my dad said the voices had stopped because he finally did what they told him to do. Goodbye, Patty. That's just a yep. really mm. potent scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. Well, and and one of the on the uh, uh, yes, Nathan's going to tease me again about it. The fact that I've rewatched the whole show again, but of the entire series, this is one of the most. There's one episode later in season two that rivals it that we'll get to probably next week. But of the entire series, this might be one of the most galvanizing cliffhangers of the entire run of the show is just like he drinks the poison and then the man who's supposed to help him empties out the syringe that's supposed to bring him back and then shoots himself in the head. And then you see Michael walk in and like drag Kevin's body off, presumably to, you know, bury it somewhere. And just that that's, that's just an incredibly electric narrative beat to end us on. Like you want to talk about it, like a propulsion into the next part of your story. Like, where do you go from there? It's, it's absolutely galvanizing. Um, So yeah, I, I absolutely love that. I didn't. I don't want us to leave this episode without talking about. I absolutely love the way they integrate um, Lori into yeah. this episode. Um, yeah. I didn't like Lori very much in the first season. Not that I actively disliked her, but just you know, she's 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 a bit. Uh, her choices make you sort of. Uh, not really endeared very much to the character uh, through the course of the first season. Um, but I just really love her desperation when she comes to try to find Tommy uh, leading right up to her having this very sincere sort of, I used to be your wife uh, moment with Kevin. Like I do really love, it's obviously very sad to think about relationships ending, yeah. but I love it when stories are able to present, Hey, we used to, be in in deeply intimate relationship and there's a familiarity that i can bring to this conversation that allows for us to to maintain some of that you know familiarity and and provide some peace some comfort uh all of that and so i just i really appreciate when shows like that uh shows like this uh bring that to the forefront like in that scene with with laurie and kevin so i just really love the way she's brought into oh and her ultimate Reunion with, uh, actually, Jill. is that this episode? <laughs> this no. is what happens, Reed. This is what happens. No, when I don't think Watch it ahead. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so I'll take the divot on that one. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I'm not positive what you're talking about there. So that's episode seven. Are we good to move into episode eight, International Assassin? Are you good, Ian, to move on? I just want to add, just I and I will be super brief. Sure. The reunion with Lori, what I thought was how Kevin can have kind of multiple patties in a way mm. in his life. Mm. And, and I'm not trying to utterly demonize Lori, but there's an irony to when Lori is trying to persuade you, like, no, no, this is all just mumbo jumbo. You know, I mean, hey, take it from me. I was part of a cult. <laughs> right. But leaves right. out, hey, I've been deprogramming those cult members with complete BS. So, right. the, mm-hmm. uh, the unspoken part is that Kevin can't know is, why should I believe you, given that you are not above 
abducting people out of one heinous lie via another lie. You know, mm-hmm. so so that's mm-hmm. what I mean. Like, he, Kevin can't know that. And so there's the dramatic irony of we do. And um, I, I found that an interesting dynamic in the midst of him trying to figure out what the heck do I do now? Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And that's a that's a powerful scene in the hotel. But yes, the 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 lingering effect of Lori's choices with Tommy continue right. to kind of surface. Um, so international assassin uh, listeners, when we pitched to Ian coming on to talk about leftovers, basically we said, okay, well we want it a little late in the run. Um, not too soon, not, you know, too late in the third season or anything. And, and, intentionally sort of steered you towards what at the time we referred to as one of the boldest episodes of the series, you know, <laughs> I've made a lot of bold proclamations about the show that are not really coming to pass with people, but um, <laughs> still not sure what you're talking about there. <laughs> nonetheless, uh, at least within the context of the show, it's a bold episode. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, would love to unpack this. So, so narratively speaking, uh, as Reed just mentioned, at the end of seven, uh, Kevin drinks this poison and is literally dragged off screen, uh, presumably to a death. Um, episode eight is, uh, pretty much entirely right, except the very end, the literal very end. When yeah, he the literal last back, five seconds. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Is, is entirely in this kind of liminal limbo type space, um, specifically represented in the form of a hotel. Uh, and some interesting conventions that present themselves at this hotel, not to be confused with a convention at a hotel, which is something totally different. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Ian, what were some just sort of general takeaways of international assassin? And I guess a good question is, would you have chosen that outfit? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I ultimately would have, I would have looked at the stolen and like, huh. but yeah. uh, then I would have said, uh, I, I haven't I haven't taken orders for ordination. I can't I can't do that. So yes, I would have yeah. gone for the I would have been bulging out. I wouldn't have worn it as well. But yes, I would take that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love and I mean the especially with all the themes that we keep bringing up every time we talk uh, in these series in this hashtag in the morning series, uh, the placard on the wall. Know first yeah. who you are. And then adorn yourself accordingly. I just, mm-hmm. oh man, it's wonderful. And, it's uh, so. Wonderful. And I, what I thought seeing that was like, I loved it. And what I thought is, yeah, but we don't do that, um, right? We, we, right. We, we just take. It. That's what we take. Um, mm-hmm. It's. I don't think that it's a hard determinism. And and this is one of the I think sinews that connects to Dark City. Um, so I'll save it for Dark City. Please <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Sure. 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 <laughs> Uh, well, but Nate- d- am, am I wrong? Your your comment, uh, Ian, like the placard speaks uh, highly, but we never actually do that. Is that that's kind of what Neil alludes to later in the episode, right? Like, oh, assassin. Yeah. That's cool. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, something something along those lines. I mean, I'm clearly paraphrasing, but uh, I, I, um, I left my notebook with my <laughs> internet. Uh, international assassin notes downstairs. So I'm oh, just okay. going off memory right now. No, you're just free, so. freewheeling. Got it. Just freewheeling. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. I, d- I just, I just <laughs> grabbed me. the suit out of the closet and I went for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Reed, what, what are some notes about international assassin for you? So, uh, 
I'm I'm gonna hit like two or three things in literal like five second notes, just sort of acknowledging them. I was like, of course, well, hello again, Gladys. Haven't seen Gladys since she took her exit in season one, very brutally. Um, that scene with Kevin Senior through this TV is just absolutely wild, um, and uh, it, you know, so out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man. Uh, and then I wrote down, and I'm here comes Holy Wayne, Kevin. oh god yeah uh, that was great and then i wrote down uh and here comes holy wayne again just sitting on a toilet like that's 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 where they always keep keep winding up he's he's got those big eyes (laughs) destiny calls man you know need a hug (laughs) it's so funny like his eyes look and i'm not making the joke to the to the 80s song but his eyes look like hungry like he looks like he is about to (laughs) Open his mouth wide Hungry and just chomp your head off. Yeah, that's. Like, <laughs> oh, thank you for taking that baton. And <laughs> I need you to see. I love that song. That's a great song. Yeah, I mean, that's a great song. <laughs> Nothing about what you just did suggests that you what hate it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we even doing here? You know. So, um, so I, uh, the, oh, Reed, you have possibly, something to say. <laughs> but poss- possibly to pivot us into something a little bit. So those were just the cursory notes. Sure. Possibly to pivot us into something far more substantial, obviously, is the interaction between Patty and Kevin. Because the story has set up. I love that, that stuff. Oh, it's wonderful. The story has set up that they are here to do battle. So Kevin, our presumed hero, is here to do battle with a most powerful adversary. And this episode, in my opinion, delivers to almost the full extent of that promise of the promise of like hey kevin and patty are going to get together and they're going to do battle and and the battle is yeah not not just in the physical but also you know sparring with ideas and sparring with concepts and uh, sparring with emotions because you have him viewing her at this is just the y'all are going to have to jump in at a certain point because I'm just going to go on this one that it's him sparring with her persona, the the uh, politician persona, right, the, the decoy. The, yes, the decoy, which has so much rich metaphor to just this is the face she puts forward. Again, this is all in a presumed version of the afterlife, but this is the face she puts forward. Then you get the sort of deeper uh, inner self, this small child who is still fully cognizant and aware of everything that they presumably are responsible for and are answering for, but is still a child. And then after, you know, what happens with that, which I'll get back to in a second, you get the other Patty, who seems like the most real and and at the bottom of the well. Yes. All of the facade stripped away. And this is her. This is Mm -hmm. this is the first time we see Patty as a human being. We saw her mm-hmm. as head of the GR. Mm-hmm. We see her as extension or ghostly presence connected to, you know, stuck to Kevin. And now, for a few minutes down at the bottom of a well, bloodied and weary and scared, we finally see Patty as a human being. And it's it's profoundly it's, powerful storytelling. I just I, it, I love every bit of that. Well, and especially and so, you're making oh, a ghost. No, no, don't do it, Ian. I, me first. Um, um. <laughs> Uh, what registered for me when you were talking about the, the sort of multifaceted presentation there is the placard. It's know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. Ian, you just said, we don't do that. Like the iterations of Patty you're seeing in the hotel. I mean, I love 
just that turn. I I would say the convention of this episode was its most wild the first time watching it. Um, in other words, comprehending the show um, now, it it had the effect was a little minimized. However, buried in there is this, as you just attempted to describe, read this fascinating undercurrent about who we are, who we present as, and and what is at the bottom of all of our wells in a certain manner of speaking. And I just found that a really, really powerful uh, uh, thread to follow. Ian, please. I was like really punched in the gut by this episode. And I don't think that what it emotionally achieves is possible without the just absolutely 180 degree detour into an utterly different genre than the show has been yeah. um, prior to this. Right. Right. And, um, I think that bold and brave is like so overused. I, I, I think that anytime someone does anything, it's so bold. But I think that it is to entirely, entirely stop in place and 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 show up over there on that horizon as something completely different. Um, because I I don't think that we can have that unraveling of the different layers of who Patty is. Without this episode that unambiguously moves into the supernatural and the and the um, there are intimations of such things in the series prior to this moment, but here is where we we emerge out of the womb of the tub and we are simply in it, and there is not a did that happen? Did that not happen? Um, this is exactly what's happening. A person can simultaneously be the woman in her fifties in a in a suit in this room, and she's also the little girl across yeah. the hall down here. And whatever whatever like hangups I do have about some of the storytelling devices that Lindelof at times uses, I think that the only way this works is to just go for broke <laughs> and and have your character named Virgil be like Virgil in. Uh, the Inferno, and he is your guide to the underworld. I mean, right. just just own that and run with it. Yeah, I, I I was absolutely floored by what this episode did. Long lingering scenes with, I mean, one of the one of the most like hard in my throat things is girl Patty sitting on the well and saying, Ugh. "Oh, would it would it make it easier if you know, like, I, would I it help too much if I say and, I deserve it?" Yeah, you know, and, and just having a full grown man. Just sit there, and uh, this episode furthers again. Like, there's like a hundred expressions on Kevin's face, just like that. Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then she goes, and like I said, you know, she. It's so rich as a scripting moment and as as a performed moment because she is a child, and the and the way she expresses self deprecating language. So mm-hmm. it is it is not simply a child being childish. Right. It is yeah. it is yeah. a very wounded and prolonged uh personality 
confined yeah. in right. the body of a child as, as you know yeah, i yeah. talk too much i'm stupid i'm and and this this is language that the the show uses you know i talk too much i'm stupid and then she says i'm a fat pig you know which this is these are these are things that clearly the abusive relationship she had with neil these are things she heard and things she yeah. she absorbed and adopted about herself and i love adorned herself with Yes, yes, and now she has clothed herself in that persona. But I love so much Kevin's honesty when he says it's hard, and she says why. He says because I feel sorry for you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 then uh, there's two things before we possibly sort of wind down the whole caboodle for myself that I did not want to leave this without without identifying because I think it's so crucial. So, in her persona as politician. She says something, and I, this is going to come up again when we get into our main film conversation about Dark City, so I'm not going to linger on her along here, but she says the phrase, and I can't imagine this is anything but entirely deliberate. She says, our cave has collapsed. Well, first right, of all, yep. there's an allusion back to the very, very beginning of season two, where the the right. cave woman's cave, like, you know, has collapsed and fallen fallen in. That was the the apocalypse in that story. But then also there is this uh because she's talking about ideas and she's talking about how people need to, you know, press forward into ideas more for survival. That child's gonna be okay because he will have trouble giving and receiving love. And it reminds me, and the reason this was on my mind is because, again, this will come up in Dark City uh, about the the allegory of the cave, the Plato's old allegory of the cave and uh, people who are stuck there and the, the way that the cave represents uh, ele- elevations in perception and elevations in understanding and recognition. So we'll get back to that when we get back into Dark City. But the other and last thing that I wanted to make sure I mentioned I had said that when Patty is at the bottom of the well, beaten and bloody, we see her at her most human. And I think the moment, probably the first moment in the show, that the show showed us Patty Levin, who Patty Levin really was and what she was about. And danged if it wasn't like the best recognition of why the GR is the entity that it is, the guilty remnant, is she talks about that Jeopardy contestant who would not speak to her. And then when he would yeah. not speak to her, she says, there's a power in that. And here I saw, right. the, we're talking about characters, but here I saw a woman who had spent so painfully much of her life feeling powerless and helpless. And the way she saw in light of Apocalypse to reclaim power was to go right. back to this experience in Jeopardy. And she wasn't the only one. She didn't start the Guilty Remnant, but that's what that's what then suddenly it's like there's a power in I will say nothing. I will speak yeah, yeah. nothing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, so much I, going on in this episode. I, I just I, I would feel remiss if I didn't bring this up. Um and I and I will be brief. The the pretext for this episode is that Kevin and Patty are gonna do battle, right? And mm. what's interesting is that doing Battle is essentially Kevin kind of like psychoanalytically drawing out because he he breaks all three rules that Gladys gives him for meeting with Patty. You know, um, mm-hmm. don't mention Neil. Um, I don't have my notes. I forget what the other two are, but I know that he he yeah. pushes back on every single one of them. Um, mm-hmm. She she asks. I I remember she asks him, um, "What is it? You know, what am I about?" You know, she asks, like, why did you 
why did you make that donation? Which is the same amount that she needed to, she had mm-hmm. said that she needed to get out of her relationship with Neil. Um, uh, what am I about, Kevin? And he says, uh, breaking up families or destroying families, right? Yeah. He completely unmasks the, you know, safe, the, the electable face of Caddy and says, well, this is what you're about. And she says, that's brilliant. She says, like, that's it. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I find it interesting that doing battle means telling her the truth. Like, you you present this persona, but here's the truth of why you do this. And and I find that really, um, really moving as a redefinition of what doing battle is. So I just, I just have to admit that I'm disappointed in a way that at the end, he still has to kill her though. Um, and I know that makes it more heartbreaking, but it just feels so like, oh man, what the was all that for then? If you're still just going to push your face down into the water to drown her, you know, you've come all this way in uncovering who Patty is and you've brought that into the light, even for herself to see. And now you see it. And you can relate to her as a human being. And you still can't get out until you kill her. And um, it just sucks. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But I think that's well, part until, of the... And I'm sorry. To no, 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 no. No, and, you go ahead. Until... It's funny. Until you got to that sad statement there, I, I was going to add to your note, Ian, about the the notion of him unmasking intent and or truth telling speaking her speak you know declaring this is who you are okay adorn yourself accordingly i'm going to tell you what you're wearing you are wearing the garb of one who breaks families juxtapose that with the beautiful i mean i i am prone to some emotionality of course but the 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 level of zero to 60 arresting emotional pang i felt when that little girl sitting on that well side says, would it help if I say I deserve it? And he says, that's not true. And what a, what an amazing truth to speak to someone, right? Like, and and so I guess, I guess I want to say, I know what you're after with your disheartment at the well scene. I can view it as a little more metaphorical because, because he's kind of tying the knot off there for that character. Mm -hmm. It feels like. Yeah. And I actually even, and I, 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 at that point, I think I always viewed that moment more as, you know, uh, putting a wounded animal out of its misery than, than I did, you know, like at that point, like, so he pushed her down the well. That happened. That's him. He did that. Um, but then, like, the moment when he falls back down the well after and drowns her after that, I didn't view that moment as so much him completing his mission as I did that something has pivoted over to where now he is just sort of, there is as odd as it sounds, there is a bit of a mercy in what he does at that end. He, he drowns her and it's a brutal, brutal uh, visualization, but you can, you can see in her face, like she doesn't, she doesn't want to get out of that. Well, like she's, she's done, you know, that's, that's, that's what I want to think too. Sure. I just had the leftover, I had the residue that I can't shake that I'm telling myself that because I want to feel better about it. No, I can understand that. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair sort of, uh, you know, pushback to against that. But I think regardless, uh, 
hard to deny just an absolutely galvanizing yeah. episode and a, a amazing very very powerful story with a lot to chew on um nathan did you have anything else you wanted to add i don't no take us out ian, ian you good okay all right <clears throat> Well, ladies and gentlemen, that has been yet another episode of Hashtag TV Guideposts, where we have spent some time, just a bit, in Jarden, Texas, but then also spent some time in some version of an afterlife where, unfortunately, all three of us have drunk the water, so uh, oh, no. we, uh, we will uh, hopefully be be seeing you guys next, uh, next time when... Uh, very, very importantly, we are only covering one episode uh, next week. We'll talk to you about that in a little bit. But join us next time uh, for hashtag TV Guideposts. Because let's face it, it would help if you realized you deserved this. So, yes, there's that. TV Guideposts. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, with folklore and lost and dark out of the way, we now invite you to another episode of Hashtag TV Guideposts, where this week we're unpacking one episode of HBO's The Leftovers, the episode titled 1013, which features arguably one of the most detestable characters in the entire show but still one of the most interesting. At least to me, we'll see what Nathan has to say. But thank you for joining us for this week's TV Guideposts. TV Guideposts! <laughs> <laughs> sounded like you, like, like you were running on stage to meet you. TV Guideposts! Please! A uh, fun little X-Files intersection here. Uh, I know that the show based the sudden departure on the book, which presumably in the book is October 14th, and thus I believe it just is. by I virtue of the architecture of the characterization, 1013 we know is a reference to uh, the date of Meg's mother's passing. 1013 is also the name of Chris Carter's production company because it was the birthday oh. of his kid, I believe. Interesting. Um, so at the end of every X Files episode, you'll see ten thirteen productions. And so interesting. Kind of little, you know, a little wink no and a nod. Well, so you, I mean, speaking of, so yes, this this episode features the you know the character I was referencing earlier is is the old character Meg, played by Liv Tyler, who I adore in everything that she's in, but really struggle with her character in this. Um, but uh, before we move on, her mom is played by our old friend Dr. Fletcher. From Split and uh, Miss Collins from Carrie, Betty Buckley. Really? Yeah, that's her. Yeah. Huh. She's Doctor Fletcher from. I mean, she's in it for you know four minutes of of screen time, but yeah, that's that's. But Dr. what Fletcher a four minutes! Sp- yeah, no kidding. Uh, but yeah, uh, Doctor Fletcher from Split and Miss Collins from Carrie, and that delighted me because I had I had forgotten uh, until my second time through it that that was that that was. Um, that is very 
Interesting, Riri. Uh, you had, I'm going to ask you a random question here, but knowing Meg's prominence here, I don't think she's the answer to this question, but you, you made a reference, I believe during No Room at the Inn, you, you, you praised the character of Matt Jameson, but made this coy statement that he's not your favorite character. And it's registered for me a couple of times post oh. that conversation, wondering who that is. I don't know that your answer is going to be, that'd be interesting if it was Meg, but I'm just more curious who, who you would identify as your oh. favorite character. No, it's Kevin. By a oh, okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like in terms of just like when I when I say favorite, like I'm sort of wrapping it all up into a package of interesting and endearing and like like Kevin is and just attractive. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can't see that face you made, but that was great. Um, uh, no, sincerely, like like he's his arc, even the times where he makes choices that you sort of, uh, you know, fall back on like, Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. I wish you hadn't done that. I still, I never don't root for Kevin. Like, like Kevin throughout the whole run of the show. I just, uh, him as a character, I just, I sympathize with his struggles. I want him to do well. I want things to be okay for him. And it's not that that's not true of other characters, but it's, it's more so true. And honestly, first season, that might go towards Nora, but the series as a whole is probably Kevin. Cool. Um, and yeah, so that's, that is good to know. Uh, so for 1013 is yes, Meg centric, you know, she appears briefly in episode three or two of this season uh, when she accosts Tommy in off ramp. So I think that is two actually. Um, and that's it until this episode. And then she gets a full blown uh, uh, installment all to herself yeah. and you I mean they just go the distance on committing to her character and this pretty pretty cool backstory I mean whether it's things like she visited Jarden mm-hmm. you know post mm-hmm. uh, 1014 uh, she visited Isaac um, yeah. you know in this ongoing pursuit of the the um, sixth sense ask what did my mother say kind of right right commentary um you know so we get that flashback we get basically it's just a catch-up that establishes and we can fill in some blanks here but establishes that there is a plot afoot by her Mm -hmm. doing in and around jarden which is i told you this um once we started season two that i couldn't remember all the bits and pieces and this is going to materialize more fully with next week's episode but i couldn't remember all the bits and pieces of the mechanics of season two but i i knew about and remembered strongly the the don't look behind the curtain stuff you Mm -hmm. know which is the meg gr plot Mm -hmm. and how freaking impressive of a sleight of hand that whole mechanism is I mean, oh my gosh yes i want um let's go let's go through some beats because i want to save the 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 final reveal until we get there and can more fully unpack that but okay sure what are what are some specific thoughts or you know cursory or profound so um might get into a little profundity in a minute but 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 on the sort of more surfacey stuff i do absolutely love the walnuts moment with isaac because 
in one of those oh, things. Like, right, on the at salad. The ver- yeah. yeah, because at the very beginning, when John takes him to task, you don't know. You haven't seen him right. in action. So you don't know. He could be a fraud. He could be somebody that, that is just completely a charlatan and, and, and no real substance to him. And so then when Meg is all like, you know, you're not real, you know, th- that's none of this. And then he busts out with that walnuts. She was very polite about it, though. Like, that's just a great moment. I love that. Yeah. Um, I, I'll mention this kind of pivoting out of what I love. Like, I think the scene on the bus with the children and the grenade is almost a Woo. bit too much. That is rough. That is, it, it is so I difficult. mean, there's, there's grenades in a backpack. And then there's grenades on a bus full of school yeah. children. Oh my gosh! Yes, grenades on a backpack is duds or like, not? Yeah, I mean, like grenades on a back in a backpack. That's just, just like, that's just let me plain old what, fun. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's see what happens here. Let's yeah. just toss these things in here. Hey, and see see what like shakes a, up. It's like a you know? it's like the hot potato game or something. Right, hey. missile missile in the roof from you know the the under the shadow is like you know that's like oh I'm, I'm about to. I'm about to go forth. Okay. I've got, yeah, I'm about to have a teeth monster. I have, I, I have oh, thoughts, okay. <laughs> a teeth monster. And so, um, <laughs> but no, like this was, this just dreadful. Like Meg. Yeah. Meg, she's awful. She's just, well, I couldn't remember what happened there when it happened. I was like, Oh God, forgot this. <laughs> like, why did I, why did I not remember? Did I block this out that all these children? No, it was, it was pretty awful. Um, so, so, I want to talk a bit about Meg because it's not theme. Um, so before we get into maybe that, do you have any sort of cursory stuff before we get up to just like sort of unpacking? Um, as a whole? Sure. Uh, love, love, love. <laughs> Everybody hear that? I love it. Um, I, you probably remember this on the pod, having zero recollection of the seeds of, how how in, unintentionally right I was, Evie's pencil joke. Yes. How I made right. a call that that felt GR themed, knowing where the series goes, knowing where the season goes, yeah. having mm-hmm. zero recollection that she encountered and told her the joke. And I was like, oh, snap. No, oh, snap. I'm right. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. I watched this show before. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. It's like my intuition was correct. <laughs> that's, right. that's what it is. That's I what is it smart. is. I is kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's great. Uh, just that interaction they have, not only does it pay off that bit, but it also plants the seed of the, the bigger picture that's at work mm. fully. Mm. Um, I had forgotten the Tommy Laurie stuff in this and, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the lines I'm going to give, these are cursory things, but they're going to undergird, I think where you're kind of aiming. Um, I love when she shows up at the revival and approaches him and just whispers, I can do this for real. I mean, that is, you know, it's, it's, it's not lost on our listeners at this point, what an unabashed Lindelof fan I am. And, and I know he doesn't write literally every line of the works he's associated with, but so he's so good. The people he assembles are so good at not just plot orchestration, but character rooted mm-hmm. dynamics. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, there's so many, t- I, what was Oh, we, I jumped back into defending Jacob last night and, and a, a, a scene happens between two characters and, and it's again, it's still just as meh as it ever was, but we're going to finish it because it's where we're at. Um, and a scene happens between two characters. And I was like, that's so generic. 
that was oh, the the, yeah, ex- yeah. the lines exchanged right there between lead characters could have been said by any character in any procedural. Yeah, just and sense. sure. Yeah, and it, I wasn't even thinking about it attached to leftovers, but using that as an example of you know that scene when that character approaches Tommy and says, "I can do this for real," like mm. so much is oh, absolutely yes in those <laughs> five words. I had to count them in those five <laughs> so words. So much is conveyed in those. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Five <laughs> <words>. <laughs> um, so love that scene. And I'll, I'll tee you up here. Um, one, just the phrase written here is Meg is a master manipulator and has total control of everything. But the, the, the Matt and Meg scene at the end is just uh, ele- elevated. Yes. So I, I have it in my notes. I was going to maybe, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll use it as, uh, yeah. unless you had more to say, I'll use I don't that. Have t- I mean, I've got lines of it written down, but no, I'm just yeah. popping this up to talk about that scene. And then just leave the, oh my gosh. Go. Uh, the, yeah, because it focuses so much on Meg in this episode that you kind of resign yourself at a certain point that we're not going to get any contemporary engagement sure. with, with what's happening. It, you know, it just feels like, yeah, this is just going to be, you know, setting up to some maybe, uh, inciting incident for the finale at the very end, but that'll be it, which we do get that. But I love so much that when she's standing in the outskirts of Jarden, and I wasn't even thinking about it. Like, I know he's out there because I've followed the season, but mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't even thinking about like, oh yeah, like Matt is totally here. When he sees her and the history and the connection of the animosity that they've had between each other, um, and I just love... So Matt does an interesting thing in this season that I don't think he did in either one or three, though I won't mention three at all, is he, to- <laughs> he, um, he totally sort of, he's tapped into the reality of people's situations in ways that I think even he himself does not quite quite know. Again, I'm talking about a fictional character here, but I'm thinking specifically about and the earlier episode when he called Nora out for bringing Mary to mm-hmm. the um, the fundraiser. And he's like, that could be viewed as hostile. And she's like, why would I be hostile? And he said, why would you? You know, like clearly reading that, yes, mm-hmm. she does have, no, he didn't know she threw a rock through their window and that she's wrestling with all these feelings, but he's picking up on that. And that having been said in this episode, I love that he has totally got Meg's number. Now he doesn't know what she's planning because who does, but he's totally knows that she's up to something. And I love, I don't know what other lines you wrote down, but I just absolutely love where he says, forgive me for being your living reminder. Living reminder. And it is. Well, it's funny about you saying that because I, I, I'm not at all, um, um, challenging that read or that read or this read, um, or that. Yes. Um, what I was thinking was interesting about that scene is one, once more, how good the show is at, at letting us occupy the brain space of a character and how they sure. perceive other characters. Because I think Matt comes off a little clownish in that scene. I think he is really? being checkmated in that scene. I think, I think you are correct that he's, he's maybe a little, um, uh, concerned. I think is actually a little strong, but I think he's maybe a little, wise to okay there's something puzzling about you being here but i think i think she gets the upper hand on him in that scene um oh wow yeah we 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 don't quite agree on that scene but that i mean that's i mean that's fine I get, it's, well listeners won't know this we we planned to record the others 
this episode a while back. And so it's been a little while since I've watched this episode. So I'm, I'm just responding one to the notes and the feelings and the feelings were Matt a little on his heels by that encounter. Man, that's, that is really interesting. So I don't, you know, this is not what I want to, to, to discuss sure. at length. We'll about go, with, go with where you go. No, but all I was, all I was going to say is just to, so you know where my mind is at so that it's not just a, a, an alternate reading of the film or of the, of the scene is the moment that pivots me away. And it's actually the moment that's sticking in my mind. That's not quite letting me get there to, to what you're expressing is when he says bluntly to her, I don't think you're being totally honest with me, Meg. Sure. And, yeah. And calling her out for that and then following that call out is when he throws the line at her, forgive me for being your living reminder. I think that's an insult to her. I don't think there's any sort of like, I don't know what else to say. I agree. Well, here's, here's the context of that line. Uh, he's apologizing for the flyers about her mom. If you recall from, mm -hmm. you know, listeners, if you're watching the show at home in season one, when, when they have that real incendiary scene, because he's made flyers about her mom. Uh, he, he says he apologizes for that. And then he says, I was just doing everything I could to get you to feel. Mm -hmm. And she says, I had forgotten that. And he says, allow me to be your living reminder. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a world, I guess all I'm saying is, you know, I think I think in this particular scene, having watched it two weeks ago, it felt to me like he's being truly apologetic with a hint of knowingness, but that I don't know. To me, to me, watching this episode, you get the impression, Meg. I don't recall the character's last name, but this character Abbott. is Abbott. That's right. Is is who she is at the point we're at is 10 moves down the line, you know, and just is, is this master manipulator of these situations. And, right. and, um, but anyway, anyway, go, go well, where you want to yeah, go. Cause, cause we don't disagree about that. And that's a, that's a good segue. Like I, even though I think Matt is more astute in that scene than, than, than maybe this part is giving him credit for, he definitely does not have a hold of like Meg's planning something awful and we need to be prepared for right. it. He's not, he's not tapped in on that. I think he recognizes that she's being dishonest, and, re and, and I do think he starts sincerely and then pivots away from that when he realizes, uh, like, oh, no, she's, she's, not, yeah. you know, she's not playing above board with she's me. She's not here on honest terms. Yes. Exactly, yeah. yes. Um, so here is my thesis that I'm going to present. This is the, the only reason I'm not saving this for like next week's episode uh, where we talk at length about season two, and maybe some of it will bleed over there is um, because it's not directly, I think the theme of the show, although it might be tied more substantially to it than I'm giving it credit for. So the character of Meg interests me profoundly because I'm going to try to make a case as briefly as I can. So, so I'm going to hone in on a scene when she leaves Jarden before all of this, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. when she leaves Jarden and she's still engaged to her fiance and all this stuff, she spits on the ground before she leaves. Right. Mm -hmm. And that moment to me indicates that everything we are about to see in the finale, we're not talking about the finale right now, but everything we're about to see in the finale is very much rooted in a personal vendetta. Sure. And, and I believe that it's meant to, sort of uh, hand out, deliver a, a rebuke 
to everything that the town represents, the safety, the we are spared, all of that. I believe that what she mm-hmm. does is meant to administer a, a rebuke to that. Um, in that sense, I feel like Meg's presence in the GR, the Guilty Remnant, that she is, you called her a master manipulator. I agree. I feel like she's using the Guilty Remnant as her agent to deliver this much more personal rebuke. In other words, I don't really consider Meg to be a member of the GR. She is nominally, and she's like the head of a faction and, and such. Right. But I don't consider her to be an outgrowth of the GR. I, I'll say it this way. She is, to me, in the show, she's an agent of chaos. To me, she's not the guilty remnant. She's the Joker. So she is using the platform. The Lido Joker, right? Uh, mm, mm, had to ruin it, didn't you? So, um, <laughs> so she's, I didn't. <laughs> she's using the platform and the avenue in me, it to, this is my interpretation of her character. Sure, yeah. Using the platform, the avenue of the guilty remnant as a means to conduct something much more personal. She doesn't believe in the guilty remnant's tenets. She doesn't, be, she doesn't buy into the cult. In my mind, she's not, she's, I mean, look, she's talking willy-nilly whenever she feels like it. And we, granted, we, we heard Patty do similar things before that, but she's also very you know, um, like her violent tendencies to towards the rest of them. Um, the, it, it just feels to me the, the pivot away from where she says to Tommy, like family is everything instead of there is no family. Like she just strikes me as somebody well, who is an well, opportunist. One, family is everything is in the last episode, but um, see, that's, I, th- I think uh, I understand what you're saying. And I think it's a fair read. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it's entirely consistent. In other words, I am with you. And, and you know, it's, it's clear by the end of this episode, so this is not a spoiler for the finale, it's clear by the end of this episode that Meg has orchestrated a massive plot to Im- impede, impair, you know, kind of wreak havoc on Jordan. So that's not spoiling anything. Um, so yes, she's on to great lengths to make this happen, but I don't, I, I personally having finished season two now, I don't see the entire arc of Meg as we've seen her about, uh, 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 shaking her fist and more at Jordan because, Mm -hmm. because I think that would, I'm with you. It's clear, you know, that scene with Isaac or the scene immediately after Isaac carries a lot of weight for her, which is what circles her back to this. But I don't, I think, I think it's a little asynchronous to the Meg of season one, not personality type, but intentionality to say Mm -hmm. her, it was all about getting back and, and effing with Jordan. Um, well, no, and so so that you don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that she, when she showed up at the Guilty Remnant's door in season one, I'm not saying that she had Jarden in mind then. Sure. What I am saying is that I think she went into it, and I think she, in season one, we see her, as we see her in the backstory of this one, beginning to try to cope. 
and beginning to try to come to something that that is going to replace everything. And that's why she gets so frustrated that things are not moving along faster in season one. That's why she gets so frustrated and she like, you know, she's pushing back a lot with Lori. And then Matt in season one pushes her over the edge with the whole mother stuff, right? And I think here's what's really interesting about it is I think what Matt did worked because at that moment in season one, when he distributes the flyers and then she just beats the fool out of him and, and then just abandons all of it. She keeps the only, the only thing at that point that she's still guilty remnanting is the smoking and the wearing white. Like now she's just sort of abandoning all of that piece of things. And I feel like that is, is something that pivoted for her. And from that point on, she is now much more anarchistic. But She's, see, I, but I think it's anarchistic to me. In the, to, you know, this is not a a dictionary thing. This is more just sort of sense would imply zero plan, just pure, you know, as you'd use the phrase chaos agent. Whereas I think, to me, Meg is just the distilled evolved version of what the gr was in just at it so in other words um and i I think i think what's fascinating about this is this conversation is about ideology and the gr is an ideological entity right right and because if you think about it you made a, a real astute observation about bottom of the well patty and that her the the signal to her of power was silence right Mm -hmm. and so by a certain token is just silence the benchmark of the gr no patty patty had that germ of a thing that gave her power that she now applied to the ideological stream that was happening in the gr the gr ultimately was in their standard practices neutral but trolls the gr are they are they're religious trolls and i don't i mean that with every ounce of intention i can sure sure because by the same token i mean what they do in season one to that town is is in its incendiariness on par with just just a reduced version of what Meg is doing to Jordan, right? See, yes, but that's the key. That's why I think she's not GR, because the GR do that to people who were victims of the departed. They're reminding people for whom somebody departed, and Meg is turning her attention. Well, but be careful. But well, see, I would wonder on that. To me, it's less about it's using the forms of the departed to troll as they do in season one. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm forming these thoughts as I'm, I'm verbalizing these as they're being established in my brain is the same to me. It's about um, it's Patty in, in uh, prodigal son return saying, we're just telling you it's over, right? She's, he says, what is this about? We're, we're telling you it's over. There's no attachments. There's no point to any of this. Right. The way of doing that was establishing simulacrums of departed people. The right. way Meg is doing this is saying your holiest of places, 
mm-hmm. we are going to desecrate to let you know there is nothing left. There is right. nothing to hold right. on to. There is no attachment. This you you use this phrase, family is everything. She's not validating that. She's using it. She's weaponizing it. Right. Right. Anyway, my my simple point is to me, I don't read uh, in indeed and in fact, she is an evolved uh uh expression of, but I think I think she just took the essence of GR and and morphed it and 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 militarized it on a certain level. And I and maybe we're not saying terribly dissimilar things because because yeah. I I think part of the dissection would be is um again I keep but coming back to the, the 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 best comparison I can make is the Joker because everybody always kept trying to find out what the Joker was about. I mean here he is burning. I mean, but at the same time, but at the same time at the same time though it felt like you were saying why meg is different is there is an emotional attachment to jordan in other words oh yeah this thing i think it's me. personal but, but i don't think right but nothing was personal with the joker he truly was it's it's not about anything it's about he on a certain level he was gr right like you, you know stop holding on to anything um well, I mean, this is not a conversation about Batman, but we could unpack like we could unpack you like, like those here. I do, I do. Yeah, we do. Um, I could unpack the you know specifics in Dark Knight of him targeting uh, you know uh, Two Face, Harvey Dent. Like tar- there's right. there was there was calculation there yes. that was that was less than just I'm going to pick random people off the street. Like I'm not saying she's random. I am saying that she's she's not. The and and that's why I say maybe we're not saying terribly dissimilar things. I feel like she's targeting Jarden because it's personal for her. And again, I go back to the, my my best sort of evidence for this case is that the show is very intentional and it's very deliberate. Sure. And I don't think it's it's meant to be a frivolous moment that she spits on the ground before she gets on the bus. And so I do think Jarden is personal. Now that having been said. Is she sort of seizing the seeds that were there in the ideologies of the GR and then just, as you're saying, if I'm uh, re-expressing you correctly, exploding them out to their most extreme conclusion? You know, I don't know that I would fight that hard against that, but I think the difference for me is she is not Patty Levin unbridled. She is a very specific thing inside this, you know, this piece of things. You know, I think there would have been any number of other sort of outbursts and, and living reminder kind of demonstrations that had been happening from the guilty remnant. But this is getting into a little bit of what happens in the finale. So maybe we can return to it a little bit more substantially where we can talk about those events in detail. But um, that is like you look, yeah, when we get there, you look at what happens in that town and it is, in direct contrast to season one where they did their thing and then took the retaliation upon themselves. Sure. There is no chance spoiler alert or spoiler hint for next. There is no chance Jarden will ever be able to retaliate in and of themselves to what the GR is, is being to what Meg is about to set up to do. Right. You know, they will need external forces. (laughs) to retaliate um but uh but yeah so i mean that's yeah 
No, I mean, I think it's a worthwhile conversation. I think it's very interesting. And if, if nothing else, it once more validates what we are mutually saying is that this is an eminently fascinating character. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, richly absolutely. drawn, uh, mm-hmm. expertly portrayed. I mean, Liv Tyler, goodness gracious. Yes, um, absolutely. She, she, she may physically spit in one scene, but she bites the head off of everybody she's in the scene with. <laughs> yeah, know? she's, yes, absolutely. Um, Volcanic. I mean, yeah. even the scene in the bar where you you as the viewer let your guard down for a yeah. minute. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah, And she true. just trolls us all. Yeah, that's true. And man, it's powerful. So we should talk about it next week, but we cannot leave the episode, of course, without revealing the final oh, sure. five, five seconds of this episode. It, the, what a killer final moment that is. It's like, amazing. That's, that's just... And and it's. it's I remember. A, I don't have. I don't think I have this physical reaction. But I remember mentally the jaw drop of yeah. like, oh, oh my, gosh. my gosh, I did not see that coming. Right, and I it's mean, so baked powerful. in. It's yeah. so obvious. Oh yeah, oh, realize. Oh, oh yeah, but it's but it's all over it. Yes, but it's uh yeah, and 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 what we're referring to, if you have not seen the episode, um, so big spoiler here is at the end of the episode, Tommy explores this little trailer that's on the grounds near where they are, and as he opens it up, he sees Evie Murphy standing right there in front of him, and he asks who she is. She writes down on a sheet of paper, fully entrenched in the GR mindset. She writes down, "It doesn't matter," and well, and oh. and Lindelof in interviews over the years talks about his style and i remember him directly talking about the reveal of evie and the girls in the trailer and he he talks about because of his experience on lost how near impossible it is to fool the audience and so he does not set out to fool the audience but there are things in other words he learned from lost and and just watching pop culture in general in its in its intersection with the internet the audience will get to your reveal before you will Yes, of course. And and so you have to be smart. You cannot pander. You cannot placate. And so he talks about how difficult it was to to Trojan horse that in and mm-hmm. to maintain and that if I remember correctly, he said, because I think this is when he was still kind of reading some stuff, but um, that he had seen it once or twice, but that by and large, the EB reveal stayed pretty uh, uh hush hush in part because they're so good at stirring the pot all these other directions and have varying via i'm sorry very viable options if viable option a is second departure well now Mm -hmm. you spin up all your characters around that possibility and they're pondering and the thought processes and the perspectives on if that's possible well now i as the viewer am spun up into that conversation right the other avenue is she ran away okay well is that plausible why would she do that never are you like wait a minute she ran away to join the GR. Like that's a whole so extra great. level. Uh, that's so a real, great. it's a real masterfully executed reveal there. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, you want to take us out? <clears throat> Once more, we close the door on leftover season two, episode nine as a door opened to reveal a trio of teen girls who have just said to hell with it all. Is Meg uh, an anarchist? Is she the GR resurgent? Is she the GR evolved? Can we ever know? Next week, join us as we have a full episode dissecting episode 10 of Leftovers Season 2 here at the Fear of God. Mm-hmm.
That was good, Reed. Yes, that was a very uh, invigorating conversation. Tonight I'll sing my songs again. I'll play the game and pretend. Mm -hmm. Though my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony, I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. Silently for me. So, uh, pouring a bit of a cold one out for the traditional opening salvo of the hashtag TV guideposts you know, introduction. It'll return. It'll return. It'll be back. It'll be back. Just wait a few weeks. It'll be right back. Like a boomerang. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, that was a bit of a wink towards season three. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like a kangaroo, like a shrimp on a barbie. Yeah. <laughs> Is that going to be a lot of what we have to like deal a, with? with this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That ain't a knife. Uh, that's a knife. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> little, uh, little, little Joey. I'm going to put you in my pouch, little lecky. <laughs> wow. This is not as fun as I thought it'd be. So, hey, um, what, are you, what are you about to do? No, nothing. I just... I was gonna, do, you, do you care yeah, if I wait, get us started with an icebreaker? Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Good idea. So, yes, we are not doing... the. I mean, the episode is a TV guide post. We're not doing a what you're watching. Um, I don't have a... <clears throat> I have a question, you know, in the mm. spirit of this season i'm trying to make happen in our conversations here okay um it is not so much a thematic conversation or a thematic okay. question i'm sorry uh as much as it's just an icebreaker slash fun slash let's just go where the spirit takes us here okay so so our primary content today uh our primary piece of art i don't love calling things content that sounds too widgety so our mm. primary piece of conversation today is centered around episode 10 of season two of the leftovers and a thing that features pretty heavily uh rather prominently late in the episode um we had on the show friend of the fog ian olson two weeks ago wherein we discussed episode eight international assassin um an episode that features a purgatory-esque hotel uh mm -hmm. where kevin our hero goes to uh, the intent of the episode is to banish from his spirit this sort of essence of Patty Levin. Well, in the 10th episode called I Live Here Now, uh, he returns to said hotel. And uh, he is, we'll get to the, the nuts and bolts of the episode, but he's inflicted with a pretty serious wound um, that ostensibly should kill him. Instead, it shunts him to this, you know, kind of limbo space, the, the children's limbo, um, where in order to return, he is called upon by speaking of Aussies, uh, Bill camp, hmm. um, to sing karaoke. Yes. And 
you about to I'll ask me to, to sing? Uh, uh no. Oh. But um one I, when we get to the formal conversation about the episode, I want to hear your thoughts on the song choice here. Mm-hmm. Um but what happens cuz I know you're such a big fan of that artist specifically. Absolutely. Well, uh so effectively and and I'm actually it sounds real glib, but it's really powerful in the episode. Kevin has to sing karaoke, which again, yes. Is that an odd convention to choose in a sort of life death type of scenario? Sure. But it's so powerfully executed and it's this, it's so thematically rich to that character's journey. Um, And so I posed the question to Reed earlier today. So Reed, if you were in a round of purgatory karaoke, what is the song that you would use to signal a fundamental metaphysical essence, deep spiritual effort to reclaim your life and your family? Now, while you ponder this, because I don't want it to just be, this is a conversation. This is an icebreak. It's a conversation start. It's not a, oh. this, and then we're going to move on. Okay. So, do you want to answer? I was going to give you some time to ponder and kind of lead a little bit in terms of the formulation here. Uh, Cause it's just fun. <laughs> Don't answer yet because okay. All right. you know, like this is a lot of criteria to think through on this. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, and because I had to do some driving around today for work and I was like, you know what? I'm going to figure out what this song is. And I must say, I'm not like a hundred percent on board with my final choice. I've got, of course, okay. it won't surprise you at all. Some runners up, some, you know, oh. a couple different ones in the mix. Right? Good. Then I can use mine too. That I pondered. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that I pondered at least. So, because you, you know, it's gotta be somewhat classic, right? Right. It can't sure. be, I mean, I, I suppose it could, if you, if you, if a person really wanted to make a case for it, but it couldn't be like, you know, a 2018 pop hit. You know, like sure, yeah. Of uh, even even though even though never going to give you up features heavily features strangely in the leftovers season two. I don't know that that would be my choice. It's just too meta. So it's got to have kind of some a classic air to it. It naturally has to be somewhat melancholy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like y- uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I suppose it doesn't have to be the tone of this. The tone of the way it's deployed in the series. It's it, there's heavy melancholy at work. Um, in my, the, okay. So I guess all I'm doing is identifying. This is the thought process I went through, right? Mm-hmm. It had to be something I'd actually be willing to sing karaoke. In front <laughs> of people. Not, right, 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 and by right. that, I don't necessarily mean like, am I willing to sing karaoke? I am, I am definitely willing to sing some karaoke. Um, but you know, it's, it's gotta, it's gotta pack a punch. Clearly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I will say a couple of the ones that entered my brain and but not what you selected, reasons, right? No. Yes. Then, okay. And reasons that I struck them. So fitting at least the criteria of something I would either a be willing to and or want to sing a karaoke of um, and actually pondered, would this be it? Um, was I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. But <laughs> You know, I just, I don't know that that sends the right message, right? Because that's probably not right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I do anything. Wait, 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 wait. 
you know, Bill came out and he's like, Hey, Nathan, you know, you gotta go sing, mate. You know? And I'm like, okay. You know, Oh, you, you were willing to push a little girl down a well, but you're not going to go sing. You know, you gotta, mm-hmm. you want to get back to your family. If you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for my Taika Watiti, you know, <laughs> wow. hey, Brett, Brett, Jermaine, you know, uh, <laughs> you're willing to push a girl down a well, but you're not going to go sing. Like you got to sing something, uh, to get your family back. And, uh, I don't know that that sends the right message, right? I would do anything for love, but sure. I won't do that. Like, Will you hose me just, down with holy water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. no, no, no. I, that's cool. <laughs> I just mean like it, you kind of hit a, it's, you just kind of hit a stop with, but I sure. won't do what? Like, no, you need to, the, the point of the exercise is to be willing to utterly go the distance. There's no, you can't, you can't say that I won't do. Like, okay, well, you're just going to stay here singing okay, karaoke until yeah, yeah. you find the right song. Another one that came to me, and this is going to be echoes of, uh, you know what? Do you have multiples that you can toss? Uh, I do, I do. Okay, well, then ones you that, do one of yours. You do ones one of yours. that uh, that that made the short list. There were there were about four or five songs that made the short list. That then the process when you texted me and sort of pre-briefed me on this yeah. question, immediately there were three or four songs that came to mind, and. I went in until about an hour before we started our recording session. I was sitting there, I was like, okay, well, it will probably be this one because this is the one that's like, you know, the, the most appropriate of those that are coming to mind. And about an hour before we started, like a hurricane, a different song came coming through and it was just like, it was just like a click. It's like, no, that's the one. That is absolutely right. 100%. So you do no have debate. a definitive. Okay. I have a definitive one. This is the song that I would use to, to do what we're describing, but maybe it's, maybe it's my wistful self. I, I did not have that bolt of lightning. I, oh, okay. I've okay. got okay. one that I'm like 90%. Oh, okay. It's not a hundred percent. Okay. Give okay. me, yeah. give me one of yours and then why you struck it. So, so I did consider Johnny Cash's song. I walk the line, which is a, okay. a favorite song of mine. I love that song, but uh, it's really about, you know, devotion. Now, now how does that go Reed? If we've never heard it. Oh, uh, you mean I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. So uh listen. I would have thought you'd have gone with boy named Sue, but yeah. <laughs> well. Um so but but I quickly kind of struck it down because it's 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 really uh it it's not melancholy enough. It's a it's more of a sort of like a definitive sort of declaration kind of thing. It's a bit um, of a toe tapper. Yeah, exactly. So, so I struck that one kind of okay. down. Do you want me to give another one that, um, that was struck down for a comparable reason? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Very shortly after that came running up Ben King's song "Stand by Me," um, and uh, and and that like, is just okay. Yeah, like the, the classic. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I do love that song. And that was that was the one mm. that before the bolt of lightning came through, I was like, I'm probably going to say this song. Um, but then a different one came to mind that I was like, no, that's, that's absolutely the song. So, yeah. Uh, I have one more that I pondered that didn't quite make it. Hold that. Yeah. <laughs> I won't cry. I won't cry. No, I won't be afraid. That's good. I like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, Short list. Entered and entered with the possibility of an almost clear winner. But for one 
glaring problem was in the spirit of the others last week and its adjacent performance uh, lead performer roles was come what may from the Moulin Rouge soundtrack. However, it's, you got to have a duet. Like, I don't know that that really functions in the ask here, which is, Hey, Nathan, you know, you're going to go up, you're going to push a girl in a well, but you're not going to sing, you know, to get, (laughs) to get back to the love of your life. And, uh, you know, the, uh, your world and your new mate, you know, your, your Jarden, Texas and your kids and your adopted kid. And, uh, that other girl you know like don't you okay so really you're gonna sing come what may with someone else in purgatory you know to get back elsewhere it doesn't really work it just doesn't work <laughs> you know that was fun um right like it's a it's a yes. it's a killer song it is a it killer is. It is. song but we, we had it, it feels sung like at our it, wedding did you yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, my wife's childhood friend and her husband sang Come What May at our hmm. wedding. You were my best man. You don't remember that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was... by now. I don't remember much. I did remember <laughs> I was your best man, though. But point, point being, it just feels like it betrays the spirit of the moment to have to duet with someone in purgatory to get back. Sure. To right. sing a love right. song with someone else. Right, of like, course. What if, you, what if in the moment you're like, wait a minute, they can sing pretty good. <laughs> Maybe you should have my family. <laughs> no, no. I was like, what if I want to stay? You know? <laughs> oh, okay. Right. I'm just saying it betrays the spirit of the moment. I think that's all. Okay. Sure. Yeah. What, what's, a, uh, what's another for you? Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rattle off my last one before my, my okay. final one. The last one that I'll mention on the short list was by you two, with or without you. Okay. Yeah. Good yeah, news yeah. is you just took out one of my others. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, good. This is a great segue. I'm so proud of us. Um, <laughs> I would, I'd sing Weather Without You to get back to you, Reed. Um, mm. If Bill Kemp was like, hey, Nathan. Uh, stop it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Every five minutes. <laughs> so, I'm going to set the scene, you know? We're going to be on the freaking fog meter, and it's like, hey, if Bill Kemp was like, I right, so here's the thing. <laughs> if you're going to write these films. <laughs> On their, on their fear and their God. <laughs> we'll see you next week, everybody. Um, okay, uh, that's amazing. So no, once once I cleared the lane of uh, meatloaf and <laughs> Moulin Rouge, um, I did ponder some David Gray's. I pondered some Over the Rhine's. Sure, couldn't sure. quite settle on. Um, Over the Rhine felt a little too esoteric um, in terms of that classic vibe. So my first impulse, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do my three landing okay. on my 90 percenter your main one, yeah, um, yeah. and let you give the big whammy. <clears throat> so I did land in the U2 territory. I pondered some killers. Oh, nice. But nice. they are pretty fresh mm-hmm. for my experience in life. Um, so of course, up for consideration first was one. Yeah. Beautiful song. Yeah. And and that was close. That hits a lot of the vectors of sure. the Venn diagram I'm after for my karaoke, my purgatory karaoke. Mm. Um, because it, it, it is just imbued, supercharged with melancholy. And yeah. that sort of, because that, oh, I forgot this one. It couldn't be like a, a you know, because there's there's songs by like artists like your Rich Mullins, your Jars of Clay type people. Yeah, of course. Who, yeah. That 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 I deeply love and am deeply ministered to by, but it's a different kind of re- 
different vibe, different energy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, I was yeah, after yeah. like that human relationship type thing. The only reason I ultimately abandoned one is because it ultimately sort of lands as a we're independent agents kind of song, right? Yes, like, right, right. We right, are right. one, but we're not the same. Which, yes. mm-hmm. again, in the spirit of the message, is like, well, what you're trying to establish is sameness. Sure, sort of, of course. Sort of. So that was that was choice A. Choice B, I did. I mean, I was Riri. I was driving around. I was I was karaoke in the car. Oh boy. To one, and then I was like, okay, not sure about that for this reason. With or without you mm-hmm. was on the short list. Yep. And that's that's a damn fine song. It is. Um, the one I landed on, it is you two, and it is felt like it hit all I was after, except for a hundred percent, you know, endorsement was all I want is you. Mm, that's a wonderful choice, isn't it? That's a wonderful choice. And it just it kind of narrowed. It was like that's yeah. kind of does hits hits all the marks. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. So I did right, not so, so read. You know, uh, uh, okay, you're willing so to push a girl down a well. Bill, now, Bill, Bill. what is your song? You're going to sing. Yeah, I'm going to sing a song. Okay. Get up on the and stage, I'm mate. Spin the wheel. I don't know the familiarity automatic that will come. And unfortunately, you know, copyright restrictions being what they are, I can't, you know, play oh part boy. of it, you know. But the song that came in just completely uh, emotionally knocked me over and said, yes, that is the song I would sing. Do you know the, the, the artist Jim Croce, if I say that name? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. The song that I would stand up and Cats sing. In the cradle. If, if Bill, if Bill Camp, that's not Jim Croce, but if Bill <laughs> Camp would, would, you know, would, uh, would I, say, like, I, 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 you know, so, okay. you're willing to push a girl down a well, but you know, <laughs> that's as much of that as I want to do. So, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> who knew? I didn't know. Uh, the song that I would stand up and sing that would, you know, reclaim would be Time in a Bottle. Do you know the time in a bottle I song? Catch time the in a bottle. That's the one. I yeah. don't. That's really about the extent of it. Yeah. So I the know lyrics, the tune, but I don't remember yeah. the lyrics. So of course the tune is very melancholy. It's got a sort of a a, a, a somber tone underneath right. it. But very yep. lovely. It works. It's it's, yes. it's it's beautiful, but it's very somber tone. The lyrics are, you know, if I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away, um, and then again I would spend them with you. And then, and then the the refrain, the choral refrain is, but there never seems to be enough. Uh, there never seems to be enough time to do the things we want to do once we find them. But I've looked around enough to know that you're the one I want to go through time with. Mm, and and so it's just, I mean, it's yeah. So when when I recalled, like I said, it was a very emotional moment when I was yeah. like, oh, this is the one. This is the song. All so right, well, let's do it. All right, Reed, you know, no, you're willing to push a girl down a well, but. <laughs> I'm about to willing to push you down a well. You and your um, Jack and Apery. Jack, uh, Jack and Ape. That's a good one. That's um, funny. Boy, what was I about to say? <laughs> I did ponder. I didn't go listen to it. It's more the mood and the chorus. But Cash is, uh, if you could read my mind. Mm, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really yes great track but i know it's a cover and that wasn't yeah, necessarily exactly. the intent yeah um anyway we'll so read no, that was fun that was, i enjoyed that that was really good so yeah now i'm picturing myself as kevin garvey standing up on the wheel at purgatory no, you picture yourself as reed lackey yeah that's true but i mean like, i mean 
Come on. Standing in his place, I, in his stead, and and just like yes, in my singing. place. That's not the song I would sing. That's but not I do the like song. That song. No. Um, so yeah. So you, you want to dive into okay. no, no. Um, <laughs> let's like yeah. You let's go, do it. I you mean, go on episode. Where here. else do we? <laughs> where else is there to go? But you know, on the bridge. We live here now. Um, so yeah, this is the finale of season two. I had mentioned kind of. Uh, I had mentioned to Ian off pod after our episode, because Ian had expressed a bit of ambivalence to the, uh, I don't know if ambivalence is the fair word, but you know, like he was having some reserved feelings in terms of the, the uh, connection to leftovers and Mm -hmm. my wife, it would be fair to say, you know, also had some comparable mixed feelings to it. That having been said, there was a very specific reaction that she had to this episode and particularly the ending of this episode where I think it would be fair to say that while her overall take on the show was very mixed, she loved this episode. This episode when you was say the like, ending. Do you mean the bridge conflict or the no, purgatory? The, the, no, not even or purgatory. The, the, the final final. The final final. The, okay. the last moment of the episode. And, and I remember when the last moment of the episode ended, she was like, that was great. That was absolutely this fantastic. This is... Oh, um, I forgot that I did look up, you know. There, there's a, I, I read a few interviews with Lindelof. Um, there's nothing hugely uh, noteworthy except, and I'll just throw this in, and then we can move back right back into there. Um, he talks about the construction of the season and how... I don't think there's any reason a viewer would know this and I wouldn't have until he articulated it. He said, Kevin, the, the earthquake that happens right when he gets to the house at the very end. Yes. Meant to echo the K woman and that he's like, it's right there. Uh, she was the K woman. She was in a group of a hundred gets. There's two people that get cut off. 2% of the world's population in the world of the show. Oh, right. And he's like, this is all this is meant to be a swirl of, but, um, I do want to talk about the, not the nuts and bolts of the episode yet, but just the general energy of it. And I rewatched it last night and this is such a cinematic episode. It really is. The, The visuals are beautiful. I mean, some of the shots are just breathtaking and I almost wish I could rewatch it or I'm sorry that I could watch it for the first time again, because mm-hmm. it's so harrowing in yeah. places that don't have a diminished effect uh, as a repeat viewing, but have just, okay, well, I know everything. And so intellectually, um, I, I, I know how it all resolves. So I'm not as maybe plugged in, but any, any general thoughts on the episode? I'm happy to jump into some. Is, this is, I mean, if not for No Room at the End, this would probably be my second favorite episode of the, of the entire series. I mean, I think this is yeah. just an, it's an outstanding, and it would be my favorite if not for No Room at the End. Um, I, it's, it's just an absolutely astounding piece of storytelling. And it's got so many substantial payoffs that are rooted in, uh, character and are are fully baked into the narrative. They're not cheap. They're not out of nowhere. Um, and they are uh, again, they're payoffs. They are callbacks. They are resolutions. They go back. The to me, season two of the leftovers is 
Like that's why I recommend the show. I, I love the show in a lot of different ways, but it is the story being told in season two. That is, if there's any reason why I would push listeners or friends to watch this show, it would be because of the story season two tells. It is a powerfully affecting story and I, I love it. Love it so much. Um, I'm going to just jump into a few scenes before some of the more powerful ones, but yeah, dude, poor Jill. Gosh, this character. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually was really moved by her scene on the stairs with Lori. Um, mm-hmm. But this poor kid just gets ground up by these jacked up adults. Yeah. Um, and that actor, I mean, she delivers when she needs to. And it's, she really does. Yeah. It's impressive. Um, I don't think we've mentioned it on pod, but we actually, we've had a couple <clears throat> of conversations on social media, Andy McDowell's daughter. Um, mm. And so, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't know that. My wife discovered that in a little trivial. What uh, do you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Lackey's wife for the (laughs) trip. Man, (laughs) I had totally forgotten about Mary coming to, and their reunion is just beautiful. I mean, I got choked up, tears in my eyes, like Chris Eccleston's buy-in as Matt Jameson at every turn, and especially in this scene, is just a thing of beauty. I mean, it's so powerful. You know what else I love about that moment is, and yes, Matt's reaction is wonderful. So is Mary's, but I love the way Nora is enjoying their mm-hmm. joy. Mm-hmm. I just, that's like, she's standing behind and she just love, you know, he's looking, he's like, is this real? And it's just, it's, it's so hard. Well, that, that, that line for a show built on how much our perceptions can deceive us and mm that is a thing supernatural is it literal you know certainly and i will ask for this very mild spoiler i mean we never find out i'm sorry no that wouldn't make any sense all i was going to say is confirming what the conversation piece that came up with vera i love that you're still left wondering did mary wake up until this scene and I love how what I was trying to get at was in terms of character and our own perceptions, you know, in his darkest moments, Matt himself is probably worried. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so was that's why the power of a line delivery yes. and this yes. exultant, um, just tender man yelling, is this real? I mean, it was just wonderful. Beautiful. Loved yeah, it. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, so one of the first things that I wrote down, and this is getting into th- this, this, I'm going to express it as a like, because I really, really like the moment. Um, this is exactly what I wrote down. As much as I love the image of Kevin staring up as the, at the girls as they're leaving and executing their plan oh, for departure, yeah. the geography of Jordan and the timing of that moment messes with my head because presumably they left the house and then drove to the lake. Now, they, they clearly had to have stopped somewhere along the way because in order for them sure. to have left the house and then gone straight to the lake, all that had to happen in between then and then was that Kevin had to like go through his whole evening, get ready for bed, go to sleep, sleepwalk, go to Michael's grandfather's house, get told that he needs to, you know, kill himself in order to free himself of Patty oh, and go yeah, yeah. and has to go to the lake and, and do his whole thing. All of that had to happen while they drove and he's walking by the way, because he's sleepwalking. <laughs> so right. 
So the the timing of the fact that they do about it. I know that's yeah. just I have to just let the mystery be because <laughs> like the timing of that just messes with my head. That having been said, I do love that moment of it's him looking wild. up and right and seeing them, and then when he leaps into the river or the lake and the earthquake happens and the water all drains right. down, it's just it's it's really affecting, very very affecting. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I love that piece of it weird as it is, you know, geography and timing wise. Well, and what, and I don't even know that by the time we get to the end of season three, that we'll be equipped to have the scope of conversation that the emotionality, this Mm -hmm. show puts on display. It does, uh, that, that we're kind of equipped for that conversation, but what a, what a moment in the car when the girls are driving and the, the one, the driver yes. gets emotional, starts to break down and an Evie wipes her tears and just says, don't or writes, don't. I mean, you know, I'm not endorsing Evie in there. I'm just saying like, nowhere does that scene make any sense, but in the leftovers. Correct. Yes. And, and yeah. And for those of us dialed in and bought in and, and willing and interested, it's there's, there's so much happening in that scene absolutely Absolutely. and it's just a tiny little you know 10 second scene um i'm going to and and you feel free after or i'm sorry we can volley some of these i don't want to shy away from the bigger way to your scenes of this episode knowing that they aren't necessarily indicative of the bigger thematic ideas we want to explore so i I don't want to hide from those um to I'll, I'll throw this, this one is huge. Um, I'm, I'm risking the fact that you might bring up another one that I actually would score a little higher here, but I do think this is a really powerful scene between Kevin and John Mm. when Mm. John, and again, same idea, same idea as Evie and the girls in the car, like the amount of the amount of things that are firing in this scene. Sure. Yes. Are multitudinous. And, You've got uh, something I did read in a Lindelof interview is they a, a, a writer that was part of the writer's room for season two was this gentleman who was they identify him as he's a practicing Muslim, but he's like this got like a doctorate in world religion. And so he was kind of their expert on religion and so had all these conversations about world religions and stuff. And they had been operating in season one. There's even I didn't see where this was or remember it, but apparently there's a note, a reference to the potential of Kevin as a prophet, like that identifier Mm -hmm. comes up and this writer in the writer's room repositioned him in season two and said, he's not that he's a shaman. He is this go between in Uh. the ether and the present. And anyway, so you've got the scene in the kennel between John and Kevin where, um, newly clarified Kevin. Yes reveals hey i saw them mm-hmm. I, and and you know he can't discern or, or doesn't have the information to tell him why or or what they did next or whatever but the dialogue that i wrote down and it's got this is where it, it feels like it left for an episode or two but when the max richter score starts to tinkle in mm-hmm. and just starts mm-hmm. building because you've got john who maybe is a character worth discussing but is so conflicted and on a certain level you it'd be easy to reduce him to just 
angry, but right, right. He challenges Kevin on the notion that they ran away. And he says, she loved her mother. She loved her brother. She loved me. So why would she do this? And Kevin says, maybe she didn't. Oh my God. Just lets it hang there. And John's like, what? Love you. Oh, and then he shoots him. I mean, like, so, so, um, I, I, yeah, I want us to feel free to explore that scene a little bit and then to let you throw any out you want to talk about. But I mean, this is a show and this will steer a little bit into my thematic notions. This is a show about attachment and yeah. And maybe clarity though. That's a bit of a antiseptic word. Is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's, it's a bit neutral of a word, but attachment and, Mm. and why we attach, why we detach, what can rebridge the gap. If you do what, will never be rebuilt, you know, like, and that scene just kind of signals all of those things. Yes. I mean, I, I did write that scene down as one of my favorite moments of the, of the episode that, I mean, Kevin is so clear headed and clear minded. And we talked a lot in the show when we did the season one sort of fuller episode, I believe that was when we talked about this subject of like truth telling and the, and like getting at the truth and Kevin on his particular part of the journey is very much in alignment with like, he, he sees very, very clearly. Right. Um, he might not have the words to fully articulate now, right now, now he does. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he, he sees very clearly. And so to come, even to come up with so bold a statement as maybe they maybe she didn't maybe she didn't love you right is just uh i mean it's it's really really powerful and john in this moment so so john is a character who he frustrates me tremendously he is so stubbornly insistent upon his demand not even need demand to control the situation and to the not even control in a manipulative sense, but to oust anything that is not in accordance with his worldview. He he did it like time after time in the season two. You talk about attachments, like John is so adamantly stuck in there are no miracles in miracle, um, and so adamantly stuck in like hey that doesn't that doesn't happen here, you know that. He's just upset and offended at Kevin saying that he died, and that's how he knows is because he came back from the dead. Um, John just is not having any of it. And, and there is a bit of sympathy. We talked last week on The Others about you know, what you do when calamity just upends your whole worldview. Like I, I love from a storytelling beat, as mad as I get at John, when he pulls the trigger on Kevin, because I'm furious at him in that moment. And then immediately the next scene, like he has barely left the trailer where he's just murdered a man, which by the way, not worth getting into too much, but I'm like, who is John in this town that he thinks he's going to get away with just shooting yeah. a man down in cold blood? You they know, give him like, a pass hard. Right. And, and so, but, so then he's not even out of the trailer for very long until suddenly they're like, it's Evie. And he right. goes and sees her on the bridge, and then it all begins to 
like at first he's just desperate to get to her, but piece by piece, mm-hmm. it begins to sort of sink in like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. his calamity. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah. And I'm not introducing this scene right now, but I was trying to ponder you referenced your wife's appreciation for the end. I was moved in ways I don't recall by he and Kevin's final scene. Oh, she, but, and she cited that she loved that scene and that's, that's yeah, definitely yeah. worth bringing up either at this point or later in it. Cause yeah, that's a, that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, without it being a means to, to unpack too much, are there, is there what, what, what's a scene or another nugget that you'd want to. Well, so, about? so, so something that does not at least, you know, substantially maybe in an ancillary way, it'll bring it up. I don't have a specific theme about this, but the payoff to all, almost all of the hippies in the commune suddenly emerging as members of the guilty remnant. That is as a story payoff. That is a goal. It is a master stroke. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That is, that is absolutely a bullseye. And it's so, it's so like casual. You're like, Oh my God. They, they just start disrobing and then, you know, uh, uh, choose here. What is, does the what does the placard say? You know, adorn yourself. Oh, know you yourself is. first. Know um, yourself, and then adorn yourself accordingly. Yeah, Ooh. and that and that's what they do in that moment. Like to suddenly have the campground turn into staging ground is yeah. insane, and yeah. it's it is game changing. It is it pivots the whole experience of that season. Um, the the magical way this well-oiled machine, all these powerful scenes start just colliding with each other. Right. I'll say this for, for me, for me, if, if anyone, if, if, um, it's not lens. What's the episode with, uh, the showdown between Nora and Erica? No, that's lens. Yeah. That's lens. Oh, is that lens? Mm -hmm. If, if that scene isn't enough, to convince you of the power of Regina King, that cinematography and performance on the bridge is, is insanely breathtaking. I mean, that's her, staggering. Yes. The way that scene is constructed, the, the, the lack of verbal audio, mm-hmm. the way, the way the character hurls herself at Evie. I mean, yes. she is, Nearly knocks her she down. Is, right. I mean, yeah. that's, there's that shot of Regina King running. Well, the first shot that I actually sent you a photo of, of her running away from the camera atop this, you know, this, this big aerial shot of the bridge right. is, is right. gorgeous. Well, then the next cut or right around there is of her running adjacent to the camera. And, and the woman is, it's like, she's picking up. It's like Captain America on the, the field of Wakanda. I mean, she, oh, yes. she's picking up yes. speed as she's going and it is, wild and then she just collides with evie and then that whole engagement there Mm. is just yes it's next level like that five minutes of scene you know is is kind of all timer to me no absolutely it is absolutely it is culminating in like you know this just absolutely devastating moment where she says why are you doing this i don't understand and evie writes back you understand you understand like oh my gosh it's yeah it's really it's really very incredible so everything about that uh definitely just sort of you know and that's what we were alluding to in last week's episode about the you know the meg character and this is her end game 
And this is what she's been, you know, building up to and leading up to is just uh, the complete assault on Jarden, Texas by the GR. And, um, and that I will say, because I don't have any thematic notions connected to this piece, but as a story and as a payoff, it's pretty powerful, is the point at which the whole just ugh, frustratingly uncomfortable, uh, the, the whole, that's not your baby. Mm, it you is. Know? It is. Oh, oh my God. Yes. I mean, that is heart in your throat. Like, like if, if, 10 seconds of film can, can induce weeping that yes. scene. Does it? Yes. I mean, my it, God, but again, it has, again, this, this, this episode is all about payoff because then on top of that, it also, uh, Nora covers mm-hmm. Lily. Yeah. So she's protecting Lily, but then who steps in and rescues me? But That's Tommy, great. That's a great it's, moment. It's, it's one of Tommy's best moments in the whole show. And, um, and it's really, it's really great just as a payoff to those characters and to that dynamic. It's just, it's really wonderful. I don't have a lot of theme to unpack from that, but that, that whole moment is really, really strong. Um, I think the only other thing that I, that, that would not be directly tied to theme is I just, I, there's so much I love about when, so when Kevin awakens again, after, singing Homeward Bound, which we alluded to in the, in the very beginning, uh, when Kevin awakens and he's making his way through Jarden mm-hmm. and seeing, and this is what I was kind of getting at when I'm like, Jarden's not going to recover from this. Sure. Like, like you didn't talk about like rioting in the streets. Like there's not a building untouched. Like they are completely, they've knocked out power grids. There are things on fire. There are people just partying up all through this town. And, Kevin, it's, it's pretty galvanizing, Kevin making his way through that um, disaster area. But I love so much when he steps in and sees like half, you know, most of the guilty remnant like asleep in that whole miracle right. National yeah. Park plate. And then uh, Meg starts singing that whole mm-hmm. it's a miracle and Evie joins it. What I love about that scene is he tolerates it for about 30 seconds before he's just like, nope, and <laughs> just starts leaving, doesn't engage, doesn't anything. He's just, he just hears them doing their thing and then just turns around and walks out of the room on them. And I love that so much because he's like, no, I've, no, we've done this, been there, whatever. I'm not no, giving him any you any more Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yeah, just like not giving them any more time or attention. And, uh, and, I, and I love that. That's, that's probably my last note that would not be directly tied to the broader thematic explorations of the show. So, um, Well, yeah, then let's... Uh, and that scene is... I referenced this last week, but that scene is where I said, I wrote, the guilty remnant are religious trolls. They, yeah. desec- they desecrate your love and they demean your hope. Yeah. Um, I do want to, just because we gave passing glance to it a minute ago, and, and I don't know if any of what you have to say, we'll circle it or we'll, we'll focus on it. Nothing thematically that I have would, uh, but the scene between Kevin and John that mm-hmm. honestly is a thematic yeah. signal of the show. Yeah. Um, you've got calamity beset John who finds Kevin after he, gut shot him in the infirmary and he shot he said, him in the chest well I mean, it was in the stomach I mean, it was in the ab. i think yeah well that's not worth spending regardless. Time. Right, right, right. i think it's in the chest but maybe. um 
but yeah. Uh, I love their back and forth because, because these two, we referenced it um, on the episode when Kevin leaves the handprint on the car, like these two are bound for a collision that happens. The post after it is this beautiful scene. John weeping says, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Kevin just responds with me. Neither they, I wrote, they laugh and they sob. And Kevin mm-hmm. just says, it's okay. It's okay. It's this beautiful. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really powerful. And the first moment, honestly, in this season where I really sort of, you know, grow sympathy for John. And I just love so much about that, that moment. And then it has it, that, that moment itself has another great payoff when they get back to their respective homes and John says, what do I do if nobody's inside? Right. And Kevin doesn't miss a beat. Kevin just says right back to him. Well, then you come over to my house. Right. And it's just like, man, the, the understanding that has been, again, Kevin is more clear eyed than he has been at any point in the show ever now. Uh, and, and the, the grace he extends, the humanity he extends, the forgiveness he extends, uh, John's, you know, humbling and, you know, Mm -hmm. he's not, he's not a humble man, but he has been humbled. Right. Right. And, and so there's just, there's just so much richness to, to all of that, that I, that I love so deeply and think it's just so wonderful. Um, well, yeah. What, what would you like to follow in terms of thematic ideas? So I think the thing that really stuck out to me does extend from Kevin's song choice mm-hmm. homeward. And it's not his song choice. He spins the wheel and that's what it lands on. So I think it's important to note that in the narrative of the show, he doesn't pick what song he wants to sing. He just spins the wheel and, and it lands on Homeward Bound. And I, you referenced it earlier in passing. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but you know, up there as probably my number one with a bullet favorite artist, musical artist of all time is Paul Simon. And very specifically, in my high school days, I connected very in a in a profound sort of paradigm shifting way to the music of Simon and Garfunkel became very, very enamored with their, with their music. So Homeward Bound has been for many years, an important song to me. I'm not going to unpack all of that here because that's not totally relevant, but I do love the way that he's singing the song. And then you see in his head, he gets to that line where he says, mm-hmm. every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines and then sees in his mind, the GR and the national geographic. No, he magazine. sees himself oh, he in, sees him- in yes, the white right. smoking. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, and then sees the National Geographic magazine and everything. And then that is the moment, kudos to Justin Thoreau as a performer, that's the moment that he begins to sort of feel the, the, the emotional gravity of what he's trying to stretch toward. And then God, just the lovely, where he says, you know, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. And then pictures Nora yep. smiling at yep. him. It's just such, it's just such a tender moment. And it's lovely and um, and then when he finishes the song, I will say, not trying to pivot out of the sort of the sen- sensitivity of the moment, but I will say, like, somebody needs to wipe his nose. Like, like when he's singing and when he's being, you know, bandaged up, that was, that was one thing that I was just sitting there. I was like, oh, my God, get this guy Kleenex, please. I meant everything. But he's so overwhelmed by all the emotionality of it. And then the vigor with which he gasps back to life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I, I'm going to give credit to my wife here for what she described this as because he steps into that house and then I'll get to my thematic idea. He steps into that house and when he looks around, God, 
it's, it's on the short list for one of the most powerful and affecting moments of the whole show is he steps into the house and first he registers Jill as Max Richter's score begins to swell. Then he registers Lori and then God love him. He sees Matt and smiling Mary sitting on the couch mm-hmm. and then he sees Tommy holding Lily mm-hmm. and then uh, he sees Nora kind of emerge out of the shadows with this and he hasn't seen Nora. You know, he went to rid himself That's of Patty right. yeah. and he hasn't seen Nora yet because mm-hmm. when he got back and was intercepted by John and taken over there, Nora wasn't back yet. So then he sees Nora who with tears in her eyes and a big smile that love lies waiting silently for me says very simply, you're home. And so just the beauty of all of that and the, the, the richness of character gravity that is, that is tied up in all of that. But what my wife described that as that I think is just so wonderful is she said, you know what that was? She said, that was a lost beach reunion right there. That was like everybody emerging mm. out of the jungle and like, you know, hugging each yeah, other. Yeah. And the music Exodus like, part one yes, and two. Exactly. Yes. That is a, that is a, you know, hearkening back to Lindelof's lost beach reunion days. And I do think that's pretty appropriate, but it is this whole, you know, reclaiming of the, 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 the love and the affection and as complex and messy as it all is. And that's what I feel like season two is largely for me about, it's about people searching desperately for home. And ultimately for these characters in this moment, things will change for many of them in season three, but ultimately for, for these characters in this moment, finding it in each other. Yeah. And, and finding that, like home is us right surrounded by one another and finding it in the relationships that they've developed over time that is that to me is what season 2 has all been about and and, and the people who are on the outside of that the megs the evies uh the entirety of the hippie guilty remnant who are rioting in the streets of jordan out there it's like they themselves have kind of given up on there being a home to come back to or to, to approach or anything. Um, but the beauty of that moment to me is that that is what they, that is what they have truly found in one another, at least for that moment is they found home in one another. And that's uh, and I just, I just find that so very lovely. I don't even have a lot to unpack beyond. Yeah. That, well, I think it's interesting. The, the, the recurring notes we're hitting through this middle section and, you know, I saw the title of the episode before I, you know, before I knew its context and, um, that's what happens in the visitor center. Yes. Yes. Is Meg. He says, what are you doing here? I don't remember her response, but she says, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And he says, I live here now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's such a statement of place. Yes. Perhaps geographical, but also bodily. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I always hate when you and I, I'll say it this way. I never intend when I branch to be a dismissal of what you're putting down thematically, I'm actually going to in- introduce things that hopefully circle right back around to it. Sure. Because because uh and one come on like i'm i'm gonna joke about thoreau's snot but that scene is incredible oh it's, it's incredible. amazing no it's and amazing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's absolutely. probably i don't i haven't seen three in a while but 
is probably a top three for him in the show performance wise. It is. Um, It definitely is. And, and it's just such a powerful execution of all the themes. And to your point about your home now, did you catch you? You probably know this, but um, anecdotally speaking or, or sort of trivial bit speaking, Nora has a line that ends every season. Uh, season one is look what I found and it's the baby. Oh, season wow. two is yeah. your home. I don't remember yeah. the final line of season three, but point being she intentionally ends every season. Wow. Has a line. Um, and it's so, I'm, so I'm here. Hmm? It's I'm here. We'll get there. Okay. But yeah, it's I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Random. I, I don't, uh, this, I, listeners real quick season three question i know the bulk i know a lot of season three takes place away from jarden but i also know some takes place in it is it i can't remember the kind of ratio i'm asking you to sort of less than a third less than a third takes place in jarden in season three yeah Mm -hmm. i think they don't start gone right no it picks up like immediate it, it picks up practically the next day Okay. And then, um, and then matters more there, just but, my curiosity. Yeah. Um, so, so the thing that I've in weeks of doing this now that I've been unable to escape my friend. Uh, and I don't say that placatingly. I say no, that as someone that two weeks ago on, or last week on, um, no, what did we cover with Ian? <laughs> Can't even remember dark city. Now. Yeah. Dark city. Uh, when, when I'm like drowning out in the ocean, just needing a life raft, um, or a, a you know, a inner tube thrown at me, um, as, as my peer and friend and, and, uh, someone I would sing a song to get back to. Um, and, and, and that's ironically kind of where this is aiming for, but the thing I can't get away from in this season and if if to me season one could be summed up by the question are we okay and the explorations of possible answers to that sure yeah season two for me in my experience of it this time the question that sums it all up is why are we losing Mm -hmm. which is features an off-ramp between laurie and tommy and and i've thought a lot in fact what I didn't want to happen was for something to supersede it by the end of the season, because I was so captivated by this. Sure. Scene. Of course. Yes. And in fact, nothing like formally superseded it. If anything, it just kind of, uh, uh, bolstered it and, and fortified it. And listeners, if you're watching, you know, season, uh, episode three off ramp, um, they're lamenting. I suppose this is after the woman is driven off the road. Um, and they're recoiling from that. It is. Yeah. I um, it is. And, you know, Tommy's been infiltrating GR houses and trying to get defectors and Lori painfully to him says, why are we losing? And Tommy's response is because they are giving them something we can strip it away. But once it's gone, we have nothing to put back in its place. And I think the question I want you and I to rest in for a little bit or the pondering to put to rest in is the thing put in its place mm. and to be clear i'm not actually a heading like my song choice i'm not heading for a hundred percent answer here as much as just a, a a near approximation but in in daily life read since that conversation i asked myself this 
not in a despairing way, in a just pondering way. Okay. And I love how so much of my intellectual life and by association, my spiritual life is attached to the fear of God of these last four years. Mm. And I often think, or at least what this question called to mind for me was a phrase JR used on sympathy for the devil, mm. empathy for the devil. Uh, that's not a song I would sing at afterlife karaoke. <laughs> Simply for the devil. That's going to get you head in the wrong direction. Uh, <laughs> but he used a phrase, the gospel of loss. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to, I want to corporeally, meaning materially, live in a place where the values I hold are grown in a population sense. Mm. It's a really weird thing to say. But what I mean is simply, do I want my views of the world because we're inherently have a selfish tendency and think we're kind of right? Do I want those types of views to flourish in civic and other types of facets of a society? Sure. But I also think something that I can't escape of why are we losing is because we're supposed to. Hmm. And, and I think, Reed, we are so scared of that. Yes. Yeah. And hear me. I know you know this, but maybe for myself, for the conversation, for anyone listening, I'm not referring to elections. I'm not referring to, you know, uh, 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 sports. I wouldn't refer to that anyway. I'm simply saying, I think, I think the essence of what, we're supposed to be about, you know, uh, another fog reference here. The only acceptable loss is our own. Like mm -hmm. I look, I look at something, uh, something that fascinates me about the campground reveal that happens is how masterfully this show has created ideological conversation amongst mm -hmm. its factions, right? Yeah. While right. still clothing it in rich character work. but it can't be ignored that because what do Tommy and Lori do? They, they play down an ideology while playing up another one. And for me, and I think you might echo this on a certain level, God will not abide an ideology. No. And I agree. And I think in the, why are we losing all I mean that what I don't mean by that is he doesn't like the GR or he doesn't like this or she doesn't like it. You know, if we're going to use fun pronouns, what I mean is simply God will not be bound to an ideology. God will right. not rest in your prescribed mores of activity, right? Of compassion, right? Of sacredness. Um, and so, so in this, why are we losing conversation? I think about this in my life. Like, how I, uh, my peers in our orbit have ideologies that I don't share and find somewhat toxic, but my children are exposed to some of those ideologies or run the risk of being exposed to some of those ideologies. And it stresses yeah. me out. And in the conversation in my head of 
if my kid came to me and said, well, why not this thing? It's really going to be hard to say, because we're supposed to lose. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to win. Winning isn't the game. It's not a game that I don't want to follow that. But point being, that's a hard, that's no one likes that. Right. People come to Jesus and say, can I sit next to you? And he says, mm -hmm. we'll give it all up. Yes. Do, you know, oh, wait, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. And they walk away. Like that is why we lose. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying Lori and Tommy don't know Jesus or need to. That's not the point. The point is they supplant an ideology with another one. And what happens in the end? There's no ideologies left. You know, if, if, um, I, I cracked open a Wendell Berry book the other day because I needed something nourishing that wasn't inciting. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. He's good for that. <laughs> he is. And wonderful for that. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody of aiming way too damn big. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and something he's a master at, like if, if there's a, technical definition of master he probably is that is it's all small and right here and nothing else yeah almost literally and nothing else and so in this conversation of why are we losing and maybe we're supposed to and maybe it is all and only meant to be small and immediate and local i think about presentness and enoughness and Kevin Garvey senior saying every man rebels against the idea that this is it. They fight windmills, they save damsels in search of greater purpose. This is Kevin's journey. You yes. have no greater purpose. It is enough. It is enough. Why are we losing? Cause we don't recognize what is enough. And, and I think about this and I got, I was, I wasn't being silly a moment ago. As I finished Leftovers episode 10 of season two last night, I was like, who am I singing for? Mm -hmm. Because if God comes to me disguised as my life, that is, my, that is God to me. And, and that, you know what I mean when I say that. I do. Oh, absolutely. I'm speaking yes. weirdly. I'm simply saying like, we want movements and placards and signals and signs and implements and, and, and votes and elections and, and, you know, save this and save that and be against this and be against that. And all of it is loss because, yeah. because, because I'm not talking, you know, maybe, maybe on the periphery, I'm talking about control. That's not what I think I'm talking about. What I think I'm talking about is simply what can I affect? What do I love? What in a purgatorial scenario will uh bill camp's prompting compel me to sing for and what comes to mind those are the things that i have influence over those are the things that matter and we lose i think sort of because we're supposed to yeah. Uh, anyway I, I don't know if i ultimately got back to where i was trying to which is to connect to what you're landing at you know because because to me it, i'm what i'm not saying is it's your family it might right. be what i am saying is it's what's in front of you yeah 
I don't know that this is a couple of things have come to mind. There's uh, I don't often invoke and a lot of it was just the, the song language that we keep wrapping around. I, I don't often invoke like old uh, Christian songs, certainly not CCM songs. Um, although I don't know if you would, but I'm to drop some newsboys. I'm not about to drop some newsboys. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't consider like when I think about CCM. Yeah. Sure. Technically, technically he is, but I don't consider rich Mullins in that camp. Rich Mullins is on oh, a, yeah, yeah. on a completely different yeah. level. Um, but that Rich Mullins song, and this is the one that came to mind, uh, you know, and, and the song starts off, I'm sure you've heard it, but the song starts off. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun and more that shines in. Yep. And, uh, and, and more that shines in the night than just the moon. There's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm in a shelter that's larger than this room. Um, and then he goes on. That's deeper than that's it. Yep. And music a music I, higher uh, than the please. song. Yeah. The music higher than the songs that I can sing. Um, the stuff of earth competes, competes for the allegiance that I owe only to the giver of all good things. And then the, the refrain that keeps coming to mind is what is his choral refrain there. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that has borne in me these songs. And if I weep, let it mm-hmm. be as a man who is longing, for, longing his home. for his home. Yep. And there's such a rich beauty to that contextualizing of faith and what faith really is. You know, if I stand, I stand on this. If I fall, I fall on this. If I sing, it's this. And if I weep, it's this. And, and those simple notions. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, Obviously, proximity to what we're watching and reading and experiencing in our lives makes its way into these episodes. And uh, purely coincidentally, earlier this week, um, a fellow church member uh, had reached out to me to ask if I had a particular Henry Henry Nowen book. Uh, I think it's Henri Nowen. But um, they asked if I had it. I didn't have that one, but it prompted me to be like, but I do have a couple and I love them. And so I want to pull that out and just see what I had highlighted. And one thing struck me so profoundly that it prompted me to, to post it to social media, just a uh, uh, segments of quotes that I want to bring up here and then maybe, you know, give a couple of my final thoughts and we'll, and we'll be done. Um, we're talking about this, this idea of loss and loss does directly cor- correlates to power. Um, that, that, that's not all it's about, but, uh, cause you even said like power and control are not that, that is too simplistic of a view to contextualize the idea of learning how to lose in, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, I'm going to cite this quote that is out there on social media in case other people have already seen it, but he wrote on there, he said, maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute to the hard tasks of love. Mm-hmm. And he said, the long, painful history of the church is the history of a people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. And he says, and you invoked it earlier, same language. This is continuing the quote. He says, Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? Mm-hmm. And it says, much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, 
who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. And I didn't know we were going to have this specific conversation, but it reflected so much in what you were saying to me about like that whole emptying of self and, and this idea of attachments that the leftovers uh, sticks with. It's like Kevin has come back from the dead twice now. And when he comes back this time, I think part of the reason he is so clear-eyed is because he's probably freer than he has ever been in that moment. Like, like he's mm-hmm. completely free. And that's not to say that the song Homeward Bound wasn't driven by these home is the connection. You know, home is the healthy, intimate relationship that he's that he's right. to to re um, engage with. But I feel like the situation is such that when you are when you are truly set free from this idea of needing to win, when when it becomes, you know, I was having a conversation with a family member of mine. And there have been a lot of difficult things that a lot of people have gone through in their, you know, navigating this global pandemic. But there was a particular thing related to my job. It was a weighty decision, a burdensome thing uh, that sensitivity demands. I probably not go too much further into, uh, except for context of this moment, because we were. I was discussing with this family member, and we were talking about. They were urging and encouraging me to to pray. To certain ends and and to invoke certain prayers that would bring about certain ends you know that will you know provision and protection for family uh you know uh, expanding our you know uh livelihood and well-being and all of those kinds of things and i i had a difficult conversation in that moment because i said that that to me is not resonating in my spirit at the moment here is what resonates in my spirit. And I said this to my family member. I said, what resonates in my spirit is I feel that my journey through this and walk, trying to walk faithfully with the Lord through this has pivoted me away from guarantees of whether or not everything's going to be okay and more a bone marrow level recognition that if things are not okay, I will not be alone. Mm-hmm. And that if things are not okay, his presence will be with me. And that, and that it not be so much about whether or not things will be okay, but that there is communion here and there is fellowship here and there is, and there is faithfulness here. And to me, that, that final moment of him just looking around at the people that mean the most to him in his life that he has left, including his ex-wife and his new committed relationship and, you know, Matt, who is, you know, in many ways, probably the best friend he has in the world in, in many weird, strange ways, you know, because of their shared experiences. And so all of these things are just like there, the people he cares about are here in this place. And, and that to me has been so much of what this situation is. I've, I've had difficult conversations with people I love um, who, are, who are struggling, and there are so many people who are struggling to try to navigate this and try to not feel this way anymore and try to not uh, you know, feel the pain and the hurt and the oppressive sense of loss that we have. And I expressed to, to someone else, I said, you know, there, there, there is no magic pill. We will not wake up tomorrow and this all be over. But just recently, this is going to sound a little silly for a moment, and then I'll then I'll I'll share this final note, and then I think I am done. Recently, we were with uh, this was around July fourth. We were 
with some friends. We had agreed. Uh, we had social distanced pretty heavily for a couple of weeks. Our friends had done the same. So we agreed under the sort of bubble measurement that was laid out to get together in our friend's backyard mm-hmm. for July 4th. And so that whole time, you know, we didn't even hug each other, hello and goodbye. We were just there, you know, in a backyard, uh, you know, sharing time with one another in the same physical space. And as we were leaving, uh, their, one of their dogs ran out uh, the, the little entrance way and, uh, and their dog took off running and in one of the most foolhardy decisions I've made in the last, you know, 40 years of my life, <laughs> I took off running after the dog. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, you know, it was very impulsive. I took off running. My wife even teased me. She's like, I have never seen you run before. Like, like, I, just, like I, just, like I just ran. Lots of Forrest Gump. I just started running. Exactly. Lots of Forrest Gump memes have now abounded in the text thread of, with That's these people. Um, but I took off running and, you know, patting myself on the back for a second, I caught the dog. And it's hard to catch a dog who's in full bore run, but whatever. But I caught the dog. As I got close to it, I'm approaching 40 years old. I'm going to be 40 years old in a couple of months. I had no earthly business running after that dog. As I approached the dog, um, I tried to stop. And my legs <laughs> said, my legs said, sure, you can stop. My upper body had so right, much. Sure. And it said, nope, nope, trains, trains you going. Did, you right. didn't have an EV to wrap your arms around. Did I you? did not. I did not. And so I fell down and got a pretty nasty scrape on my, on my knee. Um, it, it is ultimately just a scraped knee, but it was so severe for context that even f- uh, almost four weeks later, it has not yet healed. Um, it is healing, but it is it is still in many ways like still very mm-hmm. bloody and stuff like that. Like it was a really bad scrape. And those first couple of weeks afterwards were pretty difficult because of that. Um, the analogy that I'm using it to bring it back into this idea of loss and suffering and and all of these things that we're going through. Let your dog go. They're I not was our talking dogs anymore. No, no, they're not our dogs anymore. Um, I was talking through someone with someone who was really struggling because they had had some pretty devastating news in their life, and they called me, and this is this was somebody who called me sobbing and just crying, and when they called me, um, they said my impulse when anybody tells me to be strong is just to say screw you, and they didn't even use that word. They were like. Like, don't tell me to be strong right now. What are you talking to me about? Don't tell me to be strong right now. And when they said that, it was because I had said back to them, it is okay that you're not okay. Mm-hmm. That it is okay that it's not okay. And, and it's not a new, I think we've said something like that on this show recently. But then I, I shared with them later about my knee. And I said, there is no version of this where I wake up tomorrow morning and my knee doesn't hurt. But I recognize that it is in the process of healing and it is in the process of sort of getting better a piece at a time. But there's still pain associated with that. There's still like, you know, there's still things that I can't push myself to and ask of myself for this silly scraped knee to heal. And I think part of this, the other part of this whole like growing to a place of comfort with loss, if that's even possible to use that phrase, like of just accepting loss and carrying loss upon ourselves is recognizing that like that pain is not going to go away right away. And even, even if it's okay, that we're not okay. Uh, Just like, you know, John standing there talking to Kevin, I don't understand what's happening. And he says, me neither. And, and, And it's okay. And as you so beautifully put it, they, they laugh and they cry. And there's this understanding there that is just, it's okay that this is not okay. 
And I feel like in this idea of loss, we get to that place to where we just recognize that, yes, it's like there is pain and there is hurt, and we have got to let go of the stubborn demand to always be on the winning side of it. And as I had shared back to my family member, I don't know that it's going to be okay, but I am finding daily that I will not be alone in it and that I will find a home in that sense of not going through it, you know, in, in isolation, though in a version of isolation, if you, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I didn't anticipate how much this particular scene would come up and or resonate, but I think the, the John Kevin, we keep referring to there's so much humanity shared in yes. that. Yes. And I think what's important and, and a valuable takeaway um, that should be applied is a peer says, I don't understand. Mm. And not to pivot to the response being, it's okay, or it's going to be okay, or let me explain it, or let me tell you what's right. really going on, or right. let me show right. you right. this stupid viral video. Or, mm-hmm. you know what, it's really 5G. Um, you know, th- those are not the proper responses. The proper responses when someone says, I don't understand, might be me neither. Yeah. But the right. broader takeaway is connecting, is relationship, is empathizing, is yes. joining. You know, was it last week when we said this about pushing into the well versus jumping in the well with them? Like that's Kevin. Yeah jumping in the well with john yeah absolutely john, john is broken yeah and he says I, I just how did this happen what do you mean uh, uh uh you know she she loves me she loves her her brother she loves her mom well, what if she doesn't what mm-hmm. love you like john got broke yeah and at the end of it he says i don't understand and i think our capacity to say me neither it it's okay because because presence is being exercised. Yes. You know, yes. no, no, I couldn't, um, I couldn't agree. More. And, and almost even more than that, it's not just that Kevin is practicing presence with John. John is who harmed him. Yeah. Like it's not just connection. It's compassion and, and forgiveness and extending grace to the one that harms you anyway. Um, yeah. And that invocation, to final button on that, that invocation, what do I do if nobody's home? Then you come right to back. my house. Yep. Yes. Then you come over to my house. And it's that extension of like, you won't be alone. You know, like yeah. I'm not keeping, keeping and bringing I mean, it back. That's, a, re- that's a reiteration of, you know, of it's okay. That's a reiteration. Yes. You know, that's, that's your, your peer who's worried that says, what if? And you say, I'm here. Yes. You, you yes. have a home. You have a yes. place. Yes. It's here. And that's, that's as much powerful. And sometimes that's as much as it like like we will we will lose together if we yes. like like yes. that that is what will happen. Like and and if that is the case, then that is that is where we will be. And we will we will be Let's be in it then. Let's be in it then. Exactly. <laughs> like this is what it is. And it all comes back to that that relational mm-hmm. connection, that healthy, vibrant, intimate, compassion laced, um, just just giving and receiving of love. And that is where we each have to find a way to find ourselves is the giving and receiving of love, releasing the need to win 
releasing even the need to be okay and just accepting we're 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 here you're home you're home like and and i live here now yes i live here now um i i I can't think of a of a better or more appropriate sort of final note to end on but if you have one then by all means um i mean i I, you know i don't know that you're going to push back to time in a bottle but you know was a trail beneath you you're not elegant (laughs) enough is it too easy Reed, you pissed a girl, little girl into a will. You don't want to sing? <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. So perfect. So perfect. Oh, man. Oh, so, hey, we did Fog Meter on season one. So. I think we should. Let's do Fog Meter on, on season let's, two. Let's do yeah. it. Um, so uh, Fog Meter is our very specific metric of fear and God. This is a TV show. We normally do this for films, but um, it's where we measure the scares and the substance uh, of this material. We did it for season one of The Leftovers. Here we are with season two of HBO's The Leftovers. I'll lead the charge on fear. Um, there is so much suspense and so much like just raw emotional you just just a visceral response to so many things. I don't know that I would define them as scary, sure. but for sheer arresting electrical sensibilities, I'm going to give season two an eight on the fear factor. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, the, it's not going to be a perfect apples to apples here. Um, watching it a second time through knowing the architecture, you know, there's a little less electricity, but I can still recall the, the height of harrowing that the experience of discovering Evie, the experience of Regina King's run across that bridge, the experience of Nora on Lily on the bridge. Like those are set your nerves afire. Oh, absolutely. Um, and absolutely. so, yeah, I, I think it's, I think for the, for the lexicon we're using for this version of the fog meter, I'm, I'm going to join you with an eight. Okay. What would you say for the God meter? Um, I can't remember where, uh, I know broadly where season three goes. Um, but for how comparing to season one, season two takes the, the seeds planted in season one and blooms it into this epic garden of, you know, just substance and, and fruitful, interesting, dialogue uh that i think it's hard to not on my end of the conversation just throw a 10 at it you'll get no argument from me this is i i mentioned it earlier that if i recommend the show it's because of the story that season two tells so it's there's so much so much going on in this uh it's an easy 10 for me on the god meter and that means that we give season two of the leftovers. I forget exactly what our aggregate for season one was. We should we should go back and, and check that out. But we give season two on the leftovers a firm nine out of ten on the fog meter. And uh, honestly, yeah, it's 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 absolutely incredible. Um, do we even need to go to recommendations? I mean, we're doing a whole, you know, encouraging, compelling people week over week to to go and check out this show. But I, mean, I will I recommend it. I don't know if that's no, 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 absolutely. And I, I, I would even go so far as to say, like, if you don't, if you don't have it in you to commit to a show, yes, season one provides vital context for what's happening. So you have to watch season one. But even if you didn't respond very strongly to season one, like you got to get to season two. Like season two is really incredible. 
It's some powerful storytelling with some incredible payoffs. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Season and I mean, two. you know, it, you know, you pushed a little girl in a well. You're not going to watch season two. Wow. Know? I wow. mean, come wow. on. <laughs> please, please let this guy like like show up. You know, from time to time, like just this this in any 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 little context. You know, like I appreciate hey. the invite. Yeah, <laughs> it's like working well, a little bit. It he was will. all in the moment. He will though. He will. Um, all right. So that puts this because he shows back up in season three. He does. Right. He does. Yeah. Um, so um, that puts this installment, this ultimate installment, and uh, phase two of hashtag in the morning. In the books. So, Nathan, thank you so much for just a wonderful journey through season two of The Leftovers and all that we've gotten to explore in the films this time around. Of really, really, yeah, man. Tremendous. Was this was this run a ghost story? No, that was last. So, a ghost story. Oh, was that's right. We this is a paradigm about, shift. Yes, was this these, okay. those were ghost stories. These were paradigm shifts. Um, and then we will, you know, contextualize yeah, season you, three. Well, you want yeah, me? We go. I was well, going to say, no. why don't you grease the wheel a little bit? Let us know what's, yeah, yeah. That's so, what phase three is about. We'll, we'll unpack it a little bit further when we get to it, but phase three is going to be dealing head-on with apocalypse, end of the world, how you approach it, how you navigate it, and what to do when And what it, you do after it. And what you do after it, and what to do when it does and does not happen. Um, and so we've got some, some really exciting films lined up, some fun ones, uh, some really hard-hitting ones, favorite films of, of I know at least one that's a mutual favorite film of ours. Um, Batman vs. So Superman? That's not <laughs> it. Um, so what are you going to do? You're going to push the girl down a well, and then you're not going to bring up Batman vs. Superman? I got you to do it. So yes, uh, we'll be covering that in a couple of weeks. 2020, 2020 is next. Um, and then in the meantime, as we say on every episode, uh, first of all, Nathan, thank you again. But thank as you. we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We'll see you next week, everybody. See you guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.